but there's a kerfuffle with waffles. It's a kerwuffle, I guess. And, uh, ben! Uh, sorry. A fracar. A rubber. A fracar. It's one of those things. Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Truth, which is um, Terry Pratchett's way of exploring some pressing issues. <laughs> and our returning guest is journalist and author Stephanie Convery. Welcome, Steph. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back. It's been, I can't believe how long it's been. It has been the entire time that I've been living in Sydney, which is about yeah. four years. I think I, I left just after we did the first the first one that I was on. Oh. Yeah, I think you were our second ever guest. Like, yeah. It was for Mort, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Mort. Yeah. Yeah. All the way back in Pratchat 2, if uh, if you're looking, listeners. Um, this, though, is Pratchat 42, 40 episodes <laughs> in between. This is the longest gap between first and second appearance on the podcast. Uh, you've been busy since we saw you last. I have. I uh, got a new job. I'm now the deputy culture editor at The Guardian in Australia. Um, I wrote a book about boxing. It was a piece of long-form journalism, which I hope I will be able to draw on those experiences as we chat about journalism real and imagined. Yes. And I've moved to Sydney and back again. So I'm now in Melbourne. And it sort of feels like a good welcome home to be chatting to you guys about Terry. (laughs) It's like you never left. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because nothing else happened. No, there wasn't years. a pandemic or... <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Wait, what? There's a pandemic? Oh. <laughs> no, it's... Okay. No, uh, nobody tell Liz about the pandemic. Nobody tell. Yeah. It is episode 42. I feel this is weird because we're recording and this will come out around the time of my own 42nd birthday, <laughs> which is a weird coincidence. And as I was saying just before we started recording, uh, there's also a new book announced called 42, which is, of course, Douglas Adams related. An amazing treasury of his writing from his archives. So, you know, I feel like a lot of our listeners will also be Adams fans. Check that out. I think you might enjoy it. But we we should get into the book, I feel, because we've got a lot to say. And we should start, as we traditionally do, with a reading of the blurb. William just wants to get at the truth. Unfortunately, everyone else wants to get at William. And it's only the third edition. William DeWord is the accidental editor of the Discworld's first newspaper. Now he must cope with the traditional perils of a journalist's life. People who want him dead, a recovering vampire with a suicidal fascination for flash photography, some more people who want him dead in a different way, and, worst of all, the man who keeps begging him to publish pictures of his humorously shaped potatoes. (laughs) Uh, It's a good good blurb. Yeah, Um, I'd pick that up off the shelf. (laughs) Based on that alone. Now, I'm pretty sure... This is one of those ones where I'm like, I don't remember reading it at the time, but I am I am sure I've read it before, because I knew the solution to the central mystery. Oh, I had the exact opposite thing. Like, usually when I'm reading them, I'm like, oh, it's like reading it for the first time. I'm vaguely aware, but, like, I could remember so many of the jokes, 
and things from this. Like, this is one of the ones that stuck in my mind the most firmly, even though it's not one of the earliest ones I read. I think it's just one that resonated with me because it's just so full of puns. I was going to say, Liz, when I was reading this, all I was thinking of was you and your love for puns. And I was like, this is the book that Pratchett really just let loose. Like, Every opportunity there was for a pun, whether it was like, whether it was a verbal one or one that only worked on the page, like it was just everywhere. Yeah, I just stopped writing them down. There were so many of them. It's just so densely packed with the wordplay. It's just the absolute best. You can flip to a random page and there'd be an amazing pun. Like it's great. Yeah. And the plot kind of rockets along too. Like there's something happening every other, well, every page has got something happening really. And it's got such a great cast of supporting characters and new characters who we've never met before and a bunch of very familiar characters acting as supporting characters as well. So it's just, oh, it's got everything, this book. It's great. Let's get into it. Let's let's kick into the plot. It starts with William DeWord, nominative determinism, who makes a living writing a little newsletter, writing off to dignitaries, you know, nobles, notable people all around the disc, telling them what's going on in Ankh-Morpork. He does that about, I think it's once a month. And they all pay him $5 each. So he makes a, a, a living doing that. And he's just finished his latest one. And he's about to get copies made of it by an engraver when uh, he gets hit by, a well, he, there's an excuse for him to shout, stop the press before he's even a newspaper person. <laughs> uh, because he gets run over by a printing press. And this is great because there's the background of like, oh, people say the dwarves have got a way to make lead into gold and there's all these rumours flying around and it's just, you know, they've invented movable type, Mm. which, I mean, they haven't invented movable type. This has been done on the Discworld before. There's several previous books where they talk about the fact that the wizards don't like movable type and have banned it because you can't print a book of magic and then take all of the letters and mix them all up and print some other book. Like, it's going to cause magical accidents. But these dwarves are like, we've got the best printing press, we're going to use it and we're going to make money doing it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great start for the person who's going to start a newspaper to get run over by the printing press he's going to use. But there is also a great scene of Colin and Nobbs failing to protect the city as people come in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, the cart. The cart. Mm. That wouldn't be a cart full of gold or lead or something <laughs> no. that might turn lead into gold. <laughs> And then, uh, or you, are you invading the city? Uh, n- no. All right, well, <laughs> get on your way on. then. Off you go. <laughs> We're going to close the gate soon. Via the water gate, which is the one that the river comes in through. I mean, there's a lot of heavy water gate references in this book. There's uh, so many references to several things. Like there's uh, there's heaps of Pulp Fiction references. Yeah, so much Pulp Fiction. But like, it's weird because like it's both of the Pulp Fiction assassins are one guy. Oh, how do you mean? As in, like, it's Mr. Pin is both of them. Like, he looks like John Travolta, but he's got Samuel's wallet. It's true. Mm. He does. Mr. Tulip doesn't really have the vibe of either of them. So it's kind of like one character is Pulp Fiction and the other guy is there. Well, yeah. I mean, we... These are the men who are sneaking into the city via the Watergate, uh, Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, or the new firm, as they like to call themselves. I mean, they're drawing on such an archetype of, like, British crime fiction and parodies thereof. A lot of people, when this came out, compared them to Mr. Krupp and Mr. Vandermar from Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, who are very similar, like, in, in some ways, in that, you know, one of them is big and strong and doesn't say much, and the other one is small and shrewd, and both of them are horribly violent. And they refer to each other as Mr. And they call themselves the old firm. 
but the implication there is they've been doing their weird supernatural criminal activities for thousands of years. Whereas here we've got, they are that kind of archetype, but they also pride themselves on the fact that they think on their feet and they're adaptable as well. And they actually do a good job. And they kind of do, like they carry out the plan that they're given, even when it goes wrong. And they do a pretty great job of it, more or less. I mean, a great job. Yeah, of they're killing thing. it. <laughs> One of the things that I really love about, well, this book, but all of Pratchett's books generally, is that you can read them and think all of these things are so original and these ideas are so, this is the first time I've seen this kind of idea in print, and then find out that every single piece that you thought was original, it was like a reference to something. There's so much like intertextuality, if that's a word. If it's not, I just invented it um, in this book that, and in all of his books. I mean, like the Pulp Fiction reference, I just didn't even get that. It just completely slid me by amazingly, right? But I haven't seen Pulp Fiction for about 15 years, so I, I forgive myself for that. But um, <laughs> I definitely find with his books, every time I go back to them, because my cultural literacy has changed in the meantime, I find new references that I didn't see in the first instance and suddenly realise that, you know, not only is he presenting these in such an original and fresh way that you think they're original often, but also he's teaching you about um, all kinds of cultural materials and you don't even necessarily see that as it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like the first time I read this, I had not seen Pulp Fiction, so I only got those references this time round. So it was like a whole new layer. Like every, like you're saying, every time there's something new. And the next time I read it, I'm sure there's going to be something that went right on by me that I'm going to pick up again and it's going to be great. Like it was only this afternoon, having finished reading it on the weekend, that I realized that Good Mountain is a pun on Gutenberg, which yeah. I should have gotten, but I was like, oh, right, I see. Like that makes sense. It's just... Yeah, it's just so nerdy. It's so nerdy. Like, you know, all of the dwarves are named after famous typefaces or people who invented typefaces for early printing presses. He does so much research and you could just see, and I, you know, I, I don't know if other of you do this in any of your writing, but I know when I'm writing, I, I love doing this where I'm like, I've got to name some characters. What am I going to do? I'm like, oh, I'll make it a reference to a thing. Like I wrote a race of aliens and they all have names beginning with a weird letter but I've then named them after all these characters in one of my favorite TV shows, but changing the first letter of their name. And I'm like, I think this will work, but I wonder if anyone will get it. And now I'm, you know, I think, I think I'm chasing that thing where I want someone to listen to it and go, oh, wow, this, that's a reference to blah. And they'll feel so chuffed that they've worked it out. You know, that's, that's the thing I want. Does the reference exist if nobody understands it? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it exists for the author. It exists, yeah. Right? I sort of, I think though, I wonder like if Terry would have minded if a bunch of the buried references never got noticed. I feel like it would be a bit sad if they all got missed, but some of them are so subtle. Like some of them, Mm. like obviously they're, they're very obvious, but others, they're just really just sort of slid into the conversations between characters or. Yeah. Some of them are blink and you miss it as well. Like they're very, they're very short. I wonder if, because by this stage he would have had a large following already, like a big fan base. Mm. Like this is the 25th Discworld novel. So I wonder if that impacts on how many references you feel you can put in because enough people will be reading it that statistically someone will probably pick up the smallest one, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Like if that would shape the way you write it. It's an attention to detail thing too, isn't it? Like I think that's part of what makes the books and this book in particular so rich is you can kind of feel 
the work that's gone into it. There's care in every sentence, whether that's a joke or a pun or whether it's just how tightly plotted the book is. I mean, I sort of feel like this book and the books surrounding it in Discworld are kind of the pinnacle of his writing. Like he's so tight. He's on it. He's got, he's got the jokes. He's got the plots. He's got all of those really interesting archetypes, but he kind of is able to show them in a slightly different light. So you're looking at them in a new way, you know, it's fantastic. I was just so, I, I haven't read this book for probably 10 years and coming back to it this week when I was feeling kind of down in the dumps and like wondering what the next, you know, part of my career was going to be was just such a kind of thrill because it, it felt like coming home, but also looking at the industry that I work in in a slightly different way as well. Yeah. It's an absolute joy. Like, and I think, yeah, in the current context, it, prov- it, it made me feel better, which I didn't think anything could. So that was kind of, kind of mm. lovely side effect of reading this book now. Yeah. Do you, I mean, he, he started out writing for a newspaper. Like he started out as a journalist and he wrote short fiction for children that was published in the local newspaper. You've both worked for newspapers. Does that come across? Like he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to being a journalist, working for a paper? I've, I've always been at a little bit of a remove. Like I've been sort of like a freelancer. So I've never been like there when things are going to print at a newspaper I have for a magazine or two magazines, but. The things that really got me, I think, were the sub-editing things and also, like, the the very <laughs> yep. obvious ways of trying to avoid defamation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, putting a question mark on it or, like, just slotting in an allegedly um, and those kind of <laughs> things. Like, yeah. I felt that on a on a deep level. Um, and also, the just the masthead, like, con- consistently being wrong even though like why are they changing the masthead <laughs> ever but there's always something no matter how closely you read it <laughs> yeah yeah there's so many different versions of it it's great um I, well i say so many i think there's only about four but i think yep. i think also this other thing that surprised me is the time scale of this story is quite compressed like it takes place in a fairly short space of time but it's also very it's still fairly fast like they only put out, I think, four editions of the Times under the name The Times. There's one that doesn't have a name, but I think so. I think there's only five editions of the paper that come out during the course of the book. But that seems to happen. They're not doing it daily. They're doing it sort of that. Well, they don't start off doing it daily. So I think it takes place all over the space of maybe four or five days. So a lot happens in those four or five days. Not only is it the main plot, but then you know the characters trying to cover the news of all these other things that happen. Like, you know, there's the fire, there's the guy who's going to jump off the uh, roof. There's all the other stuff that happens as well show. as the plot. Mm. The flower show, yes. And the vegetables. Don't forget the yeah. vegetables. Oh, yeah, the vegetables. He grew a lot of vegetables in that, like, very short space of time. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. Uh, it's weird. I mean, I like that the blurb mentions potatoes specifically, which is important for a payoff at the end of the book, but um, they're all kinds of humorous vegetables it's one of those touchstones where it's like the duck man who i love is in this book mm-hmm. but uh is one of those things that pratchett fans have glommed onto i think and we love it and we just you know we always like we see a humorous vegetable we want to share it with other Discworld fans <laughs> before we share it with anybody else it's great i love it in student media in particular like it's different but you do have people who come in with like a very specific thing like repeatedly that like, they'll come back like one guy kept coming in with really specific covers related to very specific bands. And I guess that was like his version of vegetables. It's not as funny, but yeah. <laughs> it was Kala Walquist who 
suggested that we share our experience of humorous vegetables, funny vegetable stories on, on Twitter when you were calling out for questions. And I was thinking like, what is, what is the version of that on the culture desk at the Guardian? There are a lot of people who will come forward and say, look, I have this great piece of art that I've done that I want to share with the world. Will you write something about it? Most of the time we don't have the space to do that, but sometimes we do pick them up and sometimes actually they're the sweetest stories and they get um they get they get really well read because they're kind of I guess more human interest than anything and a little bit quirky (laughs) one of the things that I think he gets so bang on in this book I mean there are some things about it that feel a little bit out of date now almost because we're not really printing papers in the same way I mean I don't work for a physical paper I work for a digital paper so it feels different being in a newsroom when you're publishing constantly and it's going up online constantly, you're not sort of waiting for that big machine, the press, although that feeling that the the press is always hungry and it doesn't matter how much you feed it, it always needs more. I, I relate to that very much. But the part about that instinct to write about the things that are happening when you see them, even if they're kind of traumatic for you and you were involved, there's a line... A crowd was gathered outside a large building in welcome soap and the cart traffic was already backed up all the way to Broadway and, thought William, wherever a large crowd is gathered, someone ought to write down why. I sort of feel like that that instinct kind of, you see a thing happening and you think, I need to put that on paper and tell people about it. It's such, mm. such a journalistic thing. Like you you pick that up so quickly in this business and then it's everywhere. It's, it's your entire life is kind of taken over by it and you kind of almost have to put very strong barriers around yourself so that it doesn't take over every single thing in your life. And I think like you see it taking over William's life. It's, it is his entire world. He is the journalist. There's no, there's no separation between his job and his home life in this book. I mean, as you say, like his name is literally his work, right? It's a word, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I kind of, yeah, as as somebody in the industry, I kind of appreciated that understanding of the sensibility it engenders in you as a writer. I Um, have one thing to say about headlines, which might be a bit of a tangent, but sort of, I guess, in this realm, Um, because I edit a morning newsletter. So I'm up at 6am coming up with headlines for stories and like summarizing things. And my brain is not always at its peak. And so when I got to the page where... He's doing headlines sort of for the first time and it's like Patrician attacks clerk with knife and then brackets. He had the knife, not the clerk. <laughs> like that, that really spoke to me. Cause I'm like, cause you sit there going, okay, how could this be misinterpreted and then mocked on Twitter? And how do I get <laughs> away from that? Like, how do I not become like the person whose headline is shared and like laughed at? So yeah, the, the urge to put something in brackets to clarify what you mean felt that. <laughs> Yeah. Could, could you rewrite that headline so it didn't need the parenthetical? Yeah, just patrician attacks clerk. You don't need to have the knife in there. No, I guess we'll find that out if we read the article, <laughs> right? It's shocking enough. Or patrician wields knife and attacks clerk or something. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We should we should crack back into the plot because there's yes. there's a lot of it. But news of the press gets around and everybody from the patrician to the wizards at Unseen University are all like, oh, is this going to cause a problem? What are we going to do about this? And they all want to talk about it. But William inadvertently invents the newspaper because as compensation, or rather to say, sorry, we ran you over with our printing press, Gunilla Goodmountain and the other dwarves who have brought it to Angmoorpork agree to print extra copies of his newsletter. And they set it in type because the wooden engraving of his his letter that he got made has been broken in the accident. 
And he prints all these extra copies. He's not really sure what to do with them. So he writes off to some new people and says, maybe you want one. And then he feels himself sort of drawn back and writes more. And they just start printing it. And then they have the idea of selling it on the street. And they employ the canting crew, the our favorite beggars, uh, Fallon, mm-hmm. Ron and crew, uh, and Gaspard, the talking dog, of course, to sell it in the streets. But while that is happening, there's also a conspiracy going on. Because there's a meeting of people who call themselves the Committee to Unelect the Patrician, which um, <laughs> is a look. This is for the listeners who are not familiar with the Watergate scandal. Like this is an education in itself, like learning what these references mean. But the, you know the the people who were behind that were you know the Committee to Elect the President, and Nixon claimed he had nothing to do with it. But then recordings of him talking about it proved that in fact he was deeply involved. And knew all about it. So it was, that's where that comes from. But yeah, they, they want to overthrow the patrician. They want to get rid of him as so many people do. We're not sure who these people are. Whenever they meet, they're sitting in these. And I love the visual of this. And it's one of the things I always talk about how the pacing of his books makes Pratchett's books seem cinematic, but also he's so good with a visual description and the idea of all these high backed chairs that have the wings where the head is, like the bits on a plane seat that cushion your head. But then they're in shadow because there's a circle of candles on the otherwise unlit room. So they can see whoever steps into the circle, but they they can only see shadows in these seats. It's just, oh, it's great. It's like something out of, uh, what was that movie? Like the skulls about the secret society (laughs) at one of the universities in New York or something. It was a, yeah. All I remember about that was the bad lock picking, but yeah. (laughs) That feels like a movie you would watch, Liz. Yeah. Probably write a piece for me about it. I am due for a re- rewatch, and I do have a lot to say about bad lock picking in film and television, but that's a whole other side. They <laughs> do you always think, do, do it you think wrong. this is a reference that we haven't picked up? The, well, the shadowy backed chairs with the candles in a circle. Maybe it is. I mean, it feels yeah. a bit. I was going to say like Star Wars or Indiana Jones ish. Yeah, I mean, look, it feels like something out of an Alexandra Dumas novel, you know? Like, it's a real old school, these people are up to no good and we don't know who they are. Yeah, it's great. I, I just loved it so much. Um, mm. And they've got a plan. And I like, their plan is actually pretty clever. They've hired these two guys, the new firm, Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, to persuade slash kidnap this guy, Charlie, who's a shopkeeper in Quirm, who just happens to look exactly like the patrician and force him to you know what actually now now that i come to say this i get what the plan is but i'm not 100 percent sure what charlie's part in it is because the whole point was they want to frame the patrician for embezzlement so yeah. they they want it to knock him out have him lying by a horse laden with gold uh, and make it clear that he's about to leave the city stealing a whole bunch of money and it goes wrong um what happens is that uh, the, the patrician's clerk, Drumknot, shows up while they're dealing with the patrician's dog, who they don't know is going to be there. And so they improvise and they stab Drumknot and they push Charlie outside to speak to the servants and own up to the crime. And I, I guess the only thing they really needed Charlie for was to get into the building because yeah, well, they send Charlie in to get rid of the guards so they can sneak in and, and do this. It seems yeah. like a lot of effort to go to to find like a lookalike for the patrician and then just get him just to open a gate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Like, I feel like they could have done it in some other way, but maybe they, they did it because they felt like they needed a, you know, a, a fallback plan. And, and that's what, that's why it works because they use him 
to frame the petition not only for the embezzlement or the theft, but also for the attempted murder of Drumnot the clerk. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is a complicated plan, but it's not until I, when I was reading it, I was like, this is great. Because of course, you're putting it together as you go through the book. They don't ever like just lay it out for you straight up. Um, but I, and now that I come to say it again, I'm like, yeah, why did they need, did they really need him? <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, because it was a character assassination so much, like, I think they needed a definitive proof that he was involved. So, like, having him dismiss, I thought they dismissed the guard in the stables was specifically yeah. it. So, oh, yeah. that's more suspicious. Whereas if he was just found passed out next to a horse and there was nothing else tying him to it. It wouldn't be as suspicious. It does still seem way too complicated and like a little bit too much work for it. But yeah, it's character assassination, not like a thing. So they need him to look extra bad. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But also it's like a magic trick, right? Like a lot of magic tricks, they, they, they work not by doing anything especially clever, but just by doing something that you would never think someone would bother to spend the enormous amount of time to do. And so you can't figure out how it's done because you would never think, well, I wouldn't spend 400 hours making 600 copies of this thing and then hiding them in these different <laughs> ways. Like, I'm trying to be very vague so I don't give away any actual <laughs> magic tricks. I'm not in the magic circle, but I've I've worked on a couple of magic shows, so I feel like I'm not allowed to tell people how things work. But, but yeah, sometimes that's how it is. You just put in all this time and effort. And so no one would think, oh, you would go to those lengths. So I think maybe there's a, there's a bit of that as well. Because you wouldn't be like, oh, well, they've found a double, but they're not using him to, like, act as a puppet patrician. They're just using him for this small thing. Because, like, people throughout keep being like, oh, couldn't we just, like, get him? Like, they're like, no, no, that's not the plan. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think it's also not entirely clear in the book whether they've asked the new firm to find a way in and they've come up with this idea of the double. Or if they've asked them to find a double or if one of them found a double and that's what gave them the idea and then they've sent the new firm to get him. Like, I don't, they never really fill in that much detail about how the plan kicked off. But it's still, it's great. It works. It works. It works. Yeah. It works until you get into a deep dive discussion about the intricacies <laughs> of the plot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Now you have to write all novels assuming that someone in the future will read it and discuss it on a podcast. <laughs> I think about all oh, of no. those like TV shows that went to air not expecting to ever exist in a form that could be paused. And now you can like pause them and see all the detail of things that they didn't expect. And it's just, yeah, I'm like, oh, you, you poor people. I'm still going to pause your show and read what it says on the poster in the background. But, you know, they didn't think about that. Yeah. Or even ones where they just didn't think anyone would watch it twice. Uh, <laughs> and so there's like all these contradictions and continuity problems. And they were like, well, nobody cares. They only see it once a week. And like, six months later, they're not going to remember that six months ago we said blah. And now there's like a wiki about it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but like we say this now and now like in 10, 20 years, they're going to be like, ah, oh, and they didn't even realize that you could project into the past and have a look around the set and see what they were doing. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is a horrific future. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> but look, you know, this is the, the kickoff and they're, they're trying to figure out what they're going to put in this paper. And already William is hiring people because the granddaughter of the person who did his engravings, which he used to make copies of his newsletter and send them out, previously turns up going how do you take away our only income you were like our only regular client left because my granddad's a bit old and now using this printing press this is terrible you put us out of 
work. I feel like she's like, got quite a nerve being like, how dare you stop giving us... And, like, I would be annoyed too, but also, like, that's his right. Yeah, it is. I mean, he is... There's some question about the whole guild business as well, uh, because, you know, when the dwarfs first turn up, they're not, you know, they're not guild members, and movable type is unofficially banned in the city. So, you know, it's it's all a bit... It's all a bit dodgy, and he didn't do it on purpose either. But yeah, she's she's got some guts. Uh, that Sakarisa Cripslock. Um, well, I love her. Name. She's a great character, but I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, like if she's in the right here, like I, she's morally in the right, but socially, or is the other? Who knows? But yeah, I like her as a point, but I was, I don't know. It's just such a great example, though, of the way that technological change and bunny ear quote disruption has on industries that exist and you know i mean like so you think about like how uber sweeps in and completely destroys the taxi industry or i mean that's not a that's not a very good example because they're for a long time haven't been unionized but like industries that get torn apart by intervention from new technologies or new companies and not necessarily deliberately, they're just trying to find a space to do this new thing, but it, it mm. causes a whole lot of friction in all kinds of ways. I really love the way that he's kind of mapped that out in this microcosm. And I mean, obviously, Ankh-Morpork is the site where he does that, that kind of meta-analysis of social relations and, and um, industrial relations and capital and power and all of that. But I think this is such a great, it's such an interesting exploration of that dynamic between you know old technology new technology organized labor the disruptor and um yeah power at its highest level yeah and it even gets lumped in with a few of the other ones sometimes moving pictures but definitely the moist von lipwig books as they often get called the, the industrial revolution cycle because you know there's all this technology coming but one of the things that I found really kind of off-putting in a way about this book is that he refers to the history of the disc world using very like earth terms. Yeah, 1968. I'm like, what's going on? Because they're also saying century yeah. the fruit back, and I was like, what? Like, well, they. I mean, he establishes there is in. I can't remember where this is set up, but there is a thing called there's the Ankh-Morpork year, and of course, nerds. And I love you, nerds, if you're listening. Have tried to work out a full timeline of the whole series of novels, and it just doesn't quite work. So I think because the witches keep messing up the timeline well, as well. <laughs> there's a bit of that, and then there's the whole stuff that happens in um, Thief of Time and uh, Nightwatch as well, which we'll we'll get Gosh. into before too long. But that there's a bit of yeah, timey wimey, wibbly wobbly stuff going on. Uh, so it doesn't quite make sense. But yeah, 1960, that year really threw me because it's, it feels like late Victorian age. Like it's when newspapers were first starting up, which was, you know, in, in English speaking countries at least was kind of around the turn of the 20th century, I think, like, you know, the early 1900s or, or maybe, maybe, am I got that right? Maybe it's a bit earlier than that. Ben's guess is very wrong, but if you're currently shouting at the podcast about it, don't worry. The truth will get its boots on. But it feels like it should be around that time. And then, yeah, and then you hit C1968 and you're like, but wait, also it's the century of the fruit bat. This is weird. 
Have you seen newspapers from like the early days as well? Because I, I did some research into a few different things and it really blew my mind the kinds of things that were in newspapers. Like there would be like a serialized like every day an update about this couple's divorce and they weren't even like famous people. They'd be like, oh, like guess what happened at like the, the divorce trial of Mr. and Mrs. just normal people. And I'm like, so people just like reading this like it's their favorite soap opera about like kind of their neighbors but not really and that's just kind of wild to me and also just yeah they didn't hold back on gory details they also wrote in a really emotive and kind of um over the top way in a lot of cases like this really really dramatic in a way that you wouldn't you would never do now like you would mm. just be told unless unless you were writing for one of those publications that sort of trades in that stuff like a gossip bag or whatever the other thing that I didn't know, but my partner who works in at Melbourne University in the School of Journalism there was telling me about was that actually interviewing was something that you you never did as a journalist initially. Like it's, it's something that came that's actually relatively recent. Why would you go and talk to those people? You have to observe what happens. You don't ask other people what they've seen. You are the authority on the story because you are there and you are experiencing it and you are seeing what happens. That was kind of the agreement that you made with the reader. You, as the journalist, were the authority on the thing that you were writing about. So there's, you can sort of see that when you look at those old papers, that sense of a journalist's own authority that they kind of write with. That's part of the reason, I think, why they are so um, erudite when it comes to descriptions and things like that, because they're kind of trying to say, I saw this, I know this, you know. Whereas these days, if you did that, like your editor would send you the copy back and be like, you should be taking yourself out of this. This is about, you know, gathering information from other places, not putting yourself in the story. So it's almost a complete like 180 on what journalism used to be, you know. I mean, there's obviously there are so many other kind of moments in the practice of journalism over the last, what, century and a half, I guess. But I find that kind of shift so interesting, particularly in this day and age where there's such a debate around whether the view from nowhere really exists and, and what it means to be objective in newspaper reporting. That would have never occurred to me as like a thing like I didn't know that. So that is a huge shift. Yeah. It's weird because, I I mean, I remember being in uh, school, like in high school, and, you know, in English class we would do some of the kinds of writing we would do. It would be like, okay, now you've got to try and write a newspaper story. And even then, you know, (laughs) just told you how old I am, so you know that this is like... 25 years ago or more but you know we would tell you know you got to write this objectively take yourself out it was like writing it's like the way that you get told to write up a science experiment you know where it's like all Mm -hmm. in this sort of passive voice where it's like and then the paper was burned and dropped into the beaker and like nobody did it it just happened (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was a bit like that where it's like you don't talk about who saw it yeah that's weird now i want to read some really old newspapers I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. I've got some great fictional ones, but I don't have any real ones. You know, you can go, listeners, if you visit Melbourne, and I'm sure you have a library near you somewhere that's got something similar, but, you know, the State Library of Victoria, it's got this amazing collection of old newspapers from um, Victorian history, and you can look up the indexes of them and ask to see them and stuff. It's, it's amazing. The other absolutely fantastic resource is Trove which mm. is the National Library of Australia's digitization archive. The research that I was doing in newspapers most recently was for my book, which was about boxing. And so I was looking up these accounts of boxing matches and actually boxing deaths. It was pretty grim. But like, so these old accounts of, of, of um, fighters who had either been badly injured or died 
in these old newspapers. And it was just astonishing the kinds of narratives that they were writing. I mean, there were awful things that happened, but you would never describe people's dying breaths in such dramatic over, gosh, it was, it was something like something out of another world. But yeah, you can, so you could just type in any subject and you would find newspaper reports from 100, 150 years ago. Even if you choose a historic building that you're interested in, there's often stories that go with that as well. Like whenever I visit one, I look it up generally on Trove as well because that's what the cool kids do. They they go, what? how am I going to enjoy this experience? I know I'm going to look it up in the newspaper from the era and see what happened here. And usually some weird shit happened there. So, um, <laughs> And it is written really emotionally. A forensic journalistic holiday. Yeah, it's it's a good time. Okay, um, yeah. now I want to do that next time I go somewhere. Yeah, well, um, if you go to Werribee Mansion, it's 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 got a cooked history. And if you go <laughs> out in the gardens, there's this man-made pond which has a folly in it, which is like rare in the southern hemisphere, and it's decorated on the inside with and instead like stones and like things. I'm like that's quite nice. And then like and their children's teeth, and I'm like, uh, okay. whoa, yeah, creepy. I mean, I that's nice sitting in your pond grove surrounded by your kids teeth so i just i i just realized that i didn't actually know when the first newspaper was published in australia um so i looked it up and it was first printed in 1803 and it was the sydney gazette and new south wales advertiser and it was Hmm. described as moral to the point of priggishness patriotic to the point of civility so (laughs) that's a great history wow (laughs) And it was I'm the only publication that. in the colony in a time of government censorship until William Wentworth launched The Australian in 1824. There you go. Wow. Mm. I was out by at least a century in my <laughs> estimation of when newspapers started, even in Australia. Okay, wow. But there your you knowledge go. of Terry Pratchett novels is second to none. Uh, no, look, that's it's... <laughs> It'll do. It'll do. That's that's <laughs> all I'll say. Um, but, but let's get back to the bit I do know, which is the plot. Ah. Uh, <gasps> Uh, but yeah, this is, it's starting to take off. They send out the candy crew to sell it. Sells pretty well, which leads to the patrician giving William a bit of a warning. There's a great scene where he turns up at the printing press. This is before he gives William the warning about the paper, but he, he turns up at the printing press and kind of assumes William will have to take responsibility for them. And he's worried about whether or not what they're doing is going to summon, you know, horrible creatures from the beyond, <laughs> like in all the previous Discworld books. <laughs> And it's nice to see him sort of acknowledge all of the just weird shit he's had to put up with as ruler of this city. I, I love that. That was so good. There's a little bit where he's like, oh, so I assume this is like a, a Celtic stone that was like unwittingly taken from an old site. I know like, my brother just made it for me special. Like, just w- what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. They decide they're going to keep going with the paper. But the Guild of Engravers is not real happy about this. And they seem to have started up their own moving type presses now but he decided well we've got to keep it going because Gunilla good mountain who's brought the press to town with all of their friendly dwarf mates they've come to try and make money um and they're going to be put dowry, out of business so he can start his life together with his second in command and that's oh, lovely that, it's not a dowry was... liz well they, they both have like <laughs> each other i don't know it's not a thing is it like they it's have like to a buy double dowry? they buy themselves off their parents almost they pay their parents back for mm, yeah. all of the time and and money that they spent raising them. It's kind yeah. of a, it's kind of it's it's such a beautiful custom. I really liked that actually. It made sense, but it also makes dollars too. It's yeah, yes. 
but it but I mean it made sense in a way that you you know you could see it being lovely, but it's also quite different from how we would do things. This is cool. This is what I want from my world building. Like show me something that and I don't know if it's based on any real world cultural traditions I, I i mean it's obviously similar to the idea of a dowry but it's different so yeah i like that and it's yeah it just feels very dwarfy <laughs> i don't i don't know any other way to put it yeah pragmatic so i enjoyed that too william doesn't know this yet but he knows that they're here to make money and he feels a bit bad that they're going to be put out of business so he's like well maybe i'll keep doing the paper because he's making quite a lot of money they keep making it cheaper so that they sell more copies and they make more money that way but they have to try other things during the course of the book i mean they have to start selling advertising like it's like the whole history of the start of newspapers happening in the space of a week i feel it's great and tabloids as well like starting out at the same time oh yeah the guild of engravers turned themselves into the guild of engravers and printers so they changed the rules and they're going to turn up in a second but before that happens they they're also like well maybe we could put pictures in it so they hire a photographer or as they're known on the disc an iconographer who is a vampire named Otto von... Now, how would you pronounce Shriek? his last name? I was, was going to ask about this because I think this is actually a really good example of Pratchett's wordplay on the page being so fantastic because it's either Creek or Shriek, right? And yeah. he's a vampire, both of which mm. are incredibly relevant puns. Yes. Yes. So it doesn't true. matter which way. Whether you think it's Otto Shriek or Otto Creek, you have... It's like the perfect, it's the perfect on the page pun. It's so and it good. just suits him so well. So great. And you can picture him so vividly. Like it's just, yeah, I don't know. I love him so much. He's one of my all time favorite characters in the books. He's so great. Uh, he's the best. I love him. When they're surprised he's a vampire, he's like, well, I thought you were doing an affirmative action because you said <laughs> iconographer vaunted because of the typo. <laughs> So good. <laughs> I think the part in this book where I laughed out loud the longest and the hardest was that scene where he starts to get overcome with bloodlust around Sakariza and starts to go red and like, oh, his eyes are turning. And I'm not even, I just laughed so hard, so yeah. long. I, I did so many laugh out louds. Like, and usually I do like a bit of a sensible chuckle to myself when I'm reading a Terry Pratchett book, but I did like a lot of. Like there's a lot of snorts, like with yeah, like def- defamation stuff. Like I was like, <laughs> like quite regular, <laughs> just to demonstrate what a snort is, so that everyone's across that. But oh, thanks. Yep. So many laugh out loud moments. Like actually, it's just packed with them. Like, I'm jumping ahead when they meet the imp that records things, and when I realised that the imp is Clippy, I could not. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I could I not stop. That. I could not stop picturing like Terry Pratchett like on Word meeting Clippy for the first time because he wrote this in like 2000 <laughs> or 1999. So like it lines up and I'm just being so irritated that he has to make like a character that's super annoying about it. <laughs> so good. So like, would you like me to perhaps change form? Um, would that be helpful to you? And I was like, because yeah, you can change Clippy into like a dog or whatever. And it was oh, yeah. so good. Or a little Einstein. Maybe that was a downloadable bonus one. I can't remember. I think Did I had erased that from well. my mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I laughed out loud at that. That got me good. It was pretty great. Um, but look, just as they're hiring these people, this is when news breaks for the first time now because there's somewhere to report the news that Vetinari has supposedly killed someone in the Oblong office at the palace. And, and he so- had the knife, not the clerk. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. So William and Otto go up to see what's going on. William already is like, look, this is clearly news. Let's go check it out and heads up to the Oblong office. They blag their way in past uh, some of the watch officers. They talk with Commander Vimes, who doesn't really want him to be there, but can't really find a good reason for him not to be there. Uh, and is already kind of aware of the newspaper, which, since Sakarissa got involved, now is called the Ankh-Morpork Times. But I love that it was going to be called Ankh-Morpork Items. And then they mistyped it. And he says, no, no, leave it. That's that's good. Yeah. There's a recent article uh, that came out just a few days before we were recording this in the actual Times newspaper of someone going back and rereading this book. Mm. Uh, I thought, how appropriate. <laughs> We've timed this episode so well. I don't know how we managed it. But yes, uh, they it's got 42. to find out. <laughs> they learn that the patrician behaved very oddly that morning and find a few clues. They get into the murder scene where Cheery... Uh, our favorite dwarf uh, forensic officer is investigating the scene. They see like there's a crossbow bolt shot into the floor. There's some other weird stuff going on. There's a very strong smell of peppermint. There's the great thing where Otto takes a few photos and first time he does one in the watch office of, of one of the amusing vegetables that has been brought in, he just sort of runs up and down going, ah, and then he <laughs> sort of regains control of himself. But then later he takes a photo in the oblong office and he gets turned to ash by the bright flare of sunlight that comes out of his salamanders. This but he's is... got a little card because it, it's a oh. thing that he knows happens. So it's like, just, yeah, put some blood on me. I'll be fine. And then he gets swept <laughs> up. And when he gets reconstituted, part of his sleeve is turned into like fluff and cat hair. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and he's oh. like, oh, the finest steak for me. And he's like, oh, no, actually, it's dog food. And he's like offended. And it's just. <laughs> do you think, do you think this is the same? Is, is Otto the vampire character from that earlier watch book? I think it's Feet of Clay where there's that recurring joke in the background of a vampire who keeps taking jobs where things that kill vampires are there. I always thought that they were the same character. Terry does these things where he like introduces a concept at some point in this, in an earlier book. And then you can see that he's just decided that's really good, actually. You know, it yeah. was a minor part here, but I'm going to explore <laughs> it more here because I can think of all these jokes that are going to go along with it. And this character is going to flesh out really well. And I reckon that's what he's done here. I, I, I didn't remember that character when I was reading it this time around. But now that you say that, I do remember thinking when I first read this book that, hang on, I've seen this guy before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right. He was trying out the idea and then went, this is great. But I, I wonder, Otto seems very particularly, it's not clear if he was looking for something to replace blood in his life. Sorry, um, the B-word in his life. <laughs> um, and found light after experimenting with all this other stuff. Or if that was always it for him. But also the temperance movement for vampires, which he's a part of, the Black Ribboners, which is kind of properly introduced in The Fifth Elephant with Lady Margolotta. It's a great, I mean, it's it's got all the hallmarks of, you know, you standing Alcoholics Anonymous. We're all going to go together and talk about our problems and support each other through getting over this. But but it hadn't been invented yet. So I, there's a lot of things that make me feel like it's not just that previous character. It's a few other things as well that he's brought together to make Otto. But I, but I just, he could be the same guy, and I just love him. I, love I would him so love much. him to be the same guy, because that would be a brilliant backstory. <laughs> One of the other things that we should say about Otto, because it becomes very important later on, is not only is he taking photos with salamanders, which make bright sunlight, but also he's got these land eels that are from Uberwald, which make dark light. 
And there's a couple of great bits in this book where he comes up with all this like weird sort of slightly scientific jargon about what the dark light is and how it works and where it comes from. Oh, I love that so much. Ah, uh, and it's it's actually a very clever writing technique for characterization. Like it's William's father's presence is brought up early on. Like he was the guy who like discouraged him from writing. It's a frivolous thing. Like he never quite lived up to the family name. Ironically, he didn't want him telling stories and stuff. And so when Otto takes a photograph of him and he's like, oh, that's weird. There's no one else in the room. And then later it's revealed that the picture showed the father looking over his shoulder because that's kind of what's in his soul. That was a really good way of showing, because previously we're kind of getting William's perspective on things, like you see the father through his eyes, whereas this kind of takes a step back and you get to see, oh, no, this is like the truth of the matter is it actually hurts him a lot more than he's letting on and it actually steers him more. And so like when that becomes more significant later, like there's more gravitas to that scene, I think, because of that photograph. Mm. It's also a really beautiful tension builder as well because we don't know what's on the page initially, particularly like on those dark photos that he takes, mm. um, and those slowly get revealed as the, over the course of the book. But you do get the sense really quickly once they come into the picture, so to speak, that <laughs> picking, this is your influence, Liz. <laughs> it's infectious. <laughs> that something much deeper is going on and something much more sinister is occurring too. And I found that that was the really strong kind of thread that kind of kept me, well, there's a lot of threads that keep me reading a Terry Pratchett book, but like keep the plot propelling forward, um, mm. make you want to, you want to turn the page because you want to find out what's on that piece of paper. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that he used them for that. He like, he used them to sort of propel us through the book, but he doesn't really use them to propel the plot because while a lot of the characters do look at these photos and see things that we know, once we know what's going on, are clear clues as to what's happening. Like, they take one in the Oblong office, and when he gets it out of the camera later, Otto sort of says, it must be like a weird sort of double exposure or something, because there's two pictures of Vetinari. And we already know there's a double of him, and that this is a big clue as to what's happened, but nobody else picks up on that. Like, they don't ever realise that's a clue. But it does pull us through the book, and every time one of them goes off, and we want to know what's in that photo, absolutely. Yeah. We also also get frustrated at the characters for not seeing it. Like, it's right there! It's right there! Come yeah. on, when are you going to see it? <laughs> but that's what you want, right? In a mystery, you always want to feel like you're you're a little bit ahead, or or you want to... I mean, well, actually, that's that's debatable. It depends on the kind of mystery. Sometimes you want to feel like you're a bit smarter than the characters, like you've figured it out before they have, and other times... You really don't want that. Like, if you're reading, like, a Sherlock Holmes novel or, uh, you know, an Agatha Christie, usually you want the sleuth in the book to be impressing you with how smart they are. I read a great description of comedy recently that a joke is a story that has a surprising ending that makes sense. Like, a joke doesn't work if it's a surprise, but it's nonsense, which is why kids' jokes don't make any sense, right? And they're not very good jokes, but the kids love them, you know, where they go, oh, what's a, what do you get if you cross a... A fish and a dinosaur, uh, a, a, a lamp, and they will laugh like a drain, and you'll be like, it doesn't make any sense. But you will um, probably laugh too. You will, Oh, yeah. No, you always do when you're the kids because it's so funny to them, and that makes it funny. But, but the reason that doesn't work as an adult joke is because it doesn't make sense. It's got to be a surprise that when you hear it, you go, aha. And a mystery is, is a bit similar to that. Like, when you find out what happened, you've got to go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense now that you've told me. Why didn't I figure that out? 
You never want it to be like, I couldn't have known that. I recently saw a tweet that I think is a perfect example of that joke thing that you were saying, which is like, it said, why do we call them cowboys when they're men? Call them men boys. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that one as well. That was great. Because it's a surprise when it makes sense. Also, it's nonsense. <laughs> uh, no, it's great. It does. That's, yeah, some wordplay. But yeah. But look, after they've been to the, the palace and William has talked to Vimes and got his version of the story and they've found out a few things, Vimes won't say everything that he knows. They get some of the information from the staff in the palace. They realize that Vetinari's dog is not there. Nobody Waffles. seems to know where the dog is. Waffles. And so he puts together a story. This is when the guild men turn up, the guild heavies, a few trolls. So the newly changed guild of engravers and printers turn up with Mr. Slant, the zombie lawyer, representing them to say, all right, you've got to join the guild and the fee has gone up. And they're clearly leaning on them to go, we're going to run you out of town. And yet, at the same time, the whole situation goes against them because the patrician, having been arrested and no longer in charge of the city, has not been able to sign off on their new guild charter, which is where they've changed their name and they've put up the prices. So they can't enforce it, and they kind of get out of having to pay them. And also because William has learned people really don't like it when you write down what they say and then print it in a paper for everyone to read, (laughs) which I thought was so interesting. Like in this, this day and age now where... People are being videoed on phones and they'll end up on Twitter somewhere or you could be quoted at any moment. I mean, do you do you find that like when you're talking to people with stories, are they are they really picky about about this sort of thing? Yeah, there is a difference between having control over the context in which you say something publicly and having somebody else write down your words and then present them in a context that you don't have control over. Mm. And I my experience has always been that. If somebody has like tweeted something or they have put it on Instagram themselves or they've like their quotes are self-directed and published and then you take them and you put them in a story, there's generally, unless you're being really disingenuous and obviously that's not the intention for most of us in the business, like that's generally just fine. They already put that out there. They knew it was going to be public and they kind of controlled the circumstances in which they did that. But if you are writing a story about somebody and you quote them and the practice in which I work, we would not send copy for approval to the subject because that mm. um, can obviously compromise independence in journalism. So they get quite startled often when they see it come out in print because you're, they're suddenly in a new context. Their words are – they suddenly see themselves as other people might see them, and that mm. is always really disorienting. So it doesn't matter even if you're putting them in a positive light. Often it takes a few moments for people to kind of register that – that this is okay, that this, that yes, okay, it's not what you thought you looked like to other people because it's other people's perception of you, but it's okay. Sometimes they don't respond like that. Sometimes they think, oh my God, no, no, this is, this is too much and I don't like the way that I've been portrayed. And so they complain and that's their right to do that. But it is really interesting, I think, because it doesn't, it really doesn't matter how you present somebody in a piece of writing about them they will always feel, at least at the beginning, a certain kind of startled by that mm. and have to process it and kind of come to terms with it. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. And I, I do quite a lot of interviews for lots of different contexts. And the thing that struck me early on was surprised at how much, for lack of a better word, power you have as the writer because you have the ability to frame things 
that they've said literally in a way to make it sound different to what they had. So, like, if you got someone unethical or who had an agenda in what they wanted to write, they could use your words against you. Kind of mm. like, like that. that's the thing that's, like, the battle where William's writing down their words literally because he's putting it in a context that they don't like. Unfortunately, that's, like, the context they're using it in and so their ugliness is being exposed. But you can sneakily, like, you can make someone look like a real dickhead with things that they've said. Not that you ever would, but, like, it's just... It's a lot of trust to hmm. to speak to someone, and I'm always like very glad that people are happy to do that because I was just so surprised at how like just changing like it from like they exclaimed to they reflected can change the whole tone of a quote hmm. sometimes. I think you'd have to be pretty like unethical to deliberately want to frame someone in a way that you know is not how they meant to say something Mm. but yeah so this is different to what stephanie was saying about like the shock of hearing words i've been quoted before and i'm always like oh like do i really sound like that is that what i really said not because i've been framed in a strange way but it's it's odd to see yourself reflected in not a mirror so yeah Yeah. well that makes sense and it's interesting to me that you know as you're saying steph that the William grasps this almost immediately because several of the important people he speaks to throughout the book say to him, and of course you'll send me a copy to approve before you put it in print. And he already knows, although he's a bit uncertain of himself at the start, where he goes, no, I don't think I should do that. I love that he's already figured that out. Um, He's got a very kind of sharp sense of power dynamics, doesn't he? And I feel hmm. like a lot of this book is him trying to find a way to have control over his own life and his own work. And this is part of his navigation through that. You know, there's, there's his father. He's, he's been trying to kind of get his independence from his father, but also his independence from this legacy that he doesn't like. He's sort of sloughed off all of the, the riches that he was entitled to and living a life of poverty for the sake of his own, his own integrity, I suppose. And so I, I, you sort of see that in these exchanges where he's like, you know, I'm not going to give you power over what I write because that would be a relinquishment of what little I have. Mm. Another interesting thing with the quotes and the way that they are portrayed in the book is that, for example, Mr. Slant doesn't want his quotes used in that way. Like That basically drives him out of the room. Vimes cottons on very quickly to how he kind of needs to talk to William and how to do that in the most effective way to protect himself and the watch. And then there's the people who, like, are witnessing a fire and have learned about the newspaper and cannot wait to, like, get a quote in there to say, like, oh, I saw it, and here's my... And they, they tell them their here's age. my full name they, and my age, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, the difference is whether you are the story or whether you're part of the story on how involved you want to be. At least mm. that's how it was portrayed to me in the book. But, yeah. I definitely think there's a common public, I would say common public interest, but I don't mean a public interest. I mean that (laughs) members of the public often have an interest in being able to tell the story. Mm. Like we, we like to share stories. Like that's, that's one of the reasons why people read newspapers. It's one of the reasons why we read books. Like we like to tell other people these great stories or interesting stories or, or dramatic stories. Um, because telling stories to each other is how we relate to each other. So there's that natural instinct that comes out. But I saw the fire. I can tell you exactly what happened. Um, and, and I feel important for being able to do that. But if the story is about me, no, I, I want to have control over how that story is being told. 
I think they're all very natural and understandable instincts. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. But look, they put out the edition with that story in it. It sells really well. They mentioned that the watch is baffled. And so the next day, Vimes, Williams, like, uh, he's not going to be happy. I'm going to go see him. And he turns up, does that great thing of turning up just as someone said, oh, how did you know that Vimes was looking for you? And manages to impress Vimes enough that he gets himself an interview with Drumknot the Clerk, which starts off pretty well. But as soon as Williams starts saying, but how do you explain these weird things that you he's supposed to have done? Drumknot's like, I'm not talking to you anymore. You know, he's got a real sense of loyalty. And it's it's nice to see him get a moment of his own. But even then, he's still very much like Vetinari's man. But this is also, you know, where we find out that the new firm are not very happy about the way that the job has gone. They feel like they weren't told everything they needed to know. They weren't told that Vetinari has a dog. They weren't told that he was a trained assassin. Yeah, they um, made a big dog's breakfast of it. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. they made they made the best of it. And even the conspirators agree. No, they did their job well. Like, we were right to get these people in, even though at the start they're a little bit uncertain because they're like, who are these weird guys? I mean, we haven't even talked about the way that Mr. Tulip talks. I love Mr. Tulip. He's such a great, like, I think this is one of Pratchett's strengths. He's great. He's, yeah, yeah, he's put so many things into this character. Like, he could have been just the big, strong, dumb guy who swears a lot. But he's the big, dumb, strong guy who swears a lot. And he's got a weird drug habit where he'll take anything that you can powder and put into a bag. And I started making a list, actually, of some of the things that he took. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Which included powdered mothballs, uh, the troll drug honk. Uh, calcium carbonate, <laughs> curry powder, something he found in a box under the sink which cleaned drains, which means that it was a chemical, rat poison cut with powdered washing crystals. There's a scene later which we'll talk about where he sticks sandalwood up his nose. Uh, he's just, and I mean, look, I'm a bit, I'm always a bit wary of how drug use is conveyed in fiction, but I think this is so over the top and ridiculous that it's just... He doesn't even know how to take drugs. He's just shoving anything into his nose. There's that great line from Charlie uh, where Charlie's watching him, Charlie being the the patrician's double, and he's like, he's putting it in his nose and his mouth. I'm sure I saw him put it in his ear one time. And he's like, (laughs) he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, But, yeah, he's such a great character. And then not only has he got that habit, but also he's like a connoisseur of fine art and architecture. I mean, and he's so yeah. good. Oh, I think the beauty in this character is that he is so horrible in that he does horrible things to people. And yet right from the beginning, you know that that's not all there is to him. And that, I mean, he is a portrait of a person who has been turned bad due to trauma. And there's a certain amount of that that, oh, yeah, there were choices there. You know, he made choices. He's making choices to try to shovel these things up his nose. But that's... The choices, those choices aren't the, aren't the whole story. And mm. the way that, the way that those are like signaled to the reader from the very beginning of this character's introduction. I, in fact, I think it starts when he first starts talking about an architectural feature with that. You can kind of tell something's going to happen. Like he's going to have some other element to him in, in this, in the beginning of the book. And then he starts, you know, showing his knowledge of fine art and architecture. And you're like, okay, if he's not just a thug. Mm. And it, it isn't until later when, that you kind of really understand that he had a very, very traumatic childhood, and in some ways, the the fact that he wasn't that wasn't resolved turned him into the person that he is now. 
Oh, he is through most of the book. But I don't know. I just I love the fact that you can see from the start that he's not just a thug. Um, yeah. It's a very, it's very, very deft characterization. And delicately, like, done across the whole book while he's doing all these horrible things. Like you were saying earlier, I think this is kind of like the peak where everything is just going right. Just every element, like, he's just firing on all cylinders on this because there's not one thing I'd cut from this book. Like, I feel it's tightly, it's long, but it's tightly written. There's not a character or a scene or anything that I feel could be easily trimmed or that wouldn't be a loss to the overall substance of it. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's great. Look, they, they're not just annoyed by the fact that they weren't told things. I love also about the new firm that they just get increasingly, they just had it with Ank Morpork. They're like, what is this place where the police, like, actually chase you until they catch you? They don't give up after a couple of blocks and where you can't sell fine art because you know some jerk's going to, like, melt it down and make it into something useful. Like, what? Who are these people? Uh, and they hate it so much. They just want to leave. We never find out really where they're from. And I kind of want to know, like, uh, what part of the Discworld spawned these people? They're a delight in the most horrible, horrible way. But they, yeah, they've had it up to here with this. And they go to Mr. Slant to complain. They demand extra payment, which Mr. Slant agrees to. But he says, but you've got to find the dog. There's a werewolf in the watch, as you know. This is why you dropped a peppermint bomb at the scene to put them off the scent. But they could become a witness. And he mentions, like, all the other things that have been put on trial in Ankh-Morpork, including a tribe of rats, which I wonder, is that a reference to the amazing Maurice and his educated <laughs> rodents? Uh, I, I hope it is. But yeah, so they, they're going to go off and try and find the dog. But this is when the, the rival paper has been started up by the guild, the Ankh-Morpork Inquirer, filled with stories that are clearly just made up, even though it's very popular. It's got the masthead. I love seeing the logo. <laughs> I know. It just, doesn't it just scream tabloid? Like, oh, it's just so the good. italics in bold. It's, yeah. yeah. Not, you know, sans serif. Sans serif, yeah. <laughs> but very modern for Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> but not only do they do that... They also try to buy off all the staff at the Times, and they buy all the paper from Harry, Harry King. King, the King of the Golden River, the guy who makes all the paper. They buy it all from him, driving the price up, and they're like, oh, no, how are we going to afford to get more paper? We're running out. So William has to go and speak to Harry King, which is a, such a great scene. And there's several characters who are introduced in this book where we get, like, their whole backstory, and we get King's backstory, which is all based on real stuff. Like, as we know from Dodger, Pratchett is fascinated with this whole era of history where people were figuring out that there's all this waste but we can do stuff with it and you know the idea of the tosharoon and you know muckrakers and all that stuff and so harry king is based heavily in bits of fact but then they're all compressed into one person and he's got this like recycling uh what's, what's the word i'm looking for uh it's like uh, a plant like a uh, yeah it's like a sorting station really isn't it mm. yeah we need him now like yeah, I I, I don't know yeah. There's a whole this podcast, <laughs> but we have a real problem with recycling in Australia. Like we we had this whole scandal uh, a few years ago, or not even a few years ago. I think it was like it's last still, year. I think the scandal is still ongoing. Yeah, it's, just, it's not on on the front pages right now. Yeah, where there's all this like I don't know if it's organized crime, but there's certainly people who are operating what are supposedly recycling centers, but they're just storing waste instead of getting rid of it. And then some of them, when they've been found out, they just burn it. And so there's been two or three horrible chemical fires in Melbourne in various places as people like torch their illegal stash of stuff that hasn't been properly either disposed of or recycled. 
And then we've also got the problem where we send a lot of our recycling overseas, and now that's not happening because of various reasons. And we need we need a Harry King who can see the value in this, who can make it happen for us. We've even got almost the right river, you know? <laughs> we've got the Yarra. Didn't you do an article about this, Stephanie? About... About the Ankh-Morpork River, no, about like recycling and waste. I feel like you did. I could be wrong. Uh, I think that you might be thinking of my husband who did write a piece about recycling and how it's actually a scam. You're right. There have been scandals in this area in Australia, but also it is a scam. Like actually most recycling schemes involve shipping waste offshore where it gets burnt. But also recycling was um, started by companies like Coca-Cola because it was cheaper for them to make plastic bottles that were thrown away than it was to refill reusable bottles. So <sighs> this is this has been driven entirely by capital, um, mm. not by people with the earth in mind. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty depressing history, actually. So we do need Harry King, and we need Harry King because he comes from a world that works as. Pratchett often tells us, like, Ankh-Morpork is a strange place. The disc world is a strange place, but it works. And, yeah. and that's the important thing. <laughs> we, need, we need a world that works. Yeah, we could do with a veterinary, too. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Not that I'm saying we should have a dictator. I mean, he's a nice dictator, but still. I, I it's do it's like who that, comes next is the problem. Yeah. and it. But I like that several points in this book, people are very careful to describe even veterinary as no he is like a horrible dictator who can put people to death like it's allegedly question mark yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah sorry some may Um, say (laughs) not not a journalistic podcast thankfully um but uh uh but they go and they go and visit harry we get his backstory which is wonderful and they kind of find his not his lever but they william sort of reveals to himself and i love that the thing that turns harry around about getting them some paper is that he sees that William is in his own way a muckraker too. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it was great. And also he's got, you know, he's got a real soft spot for his daughter Effie and uh, wants them to come and cover his daughter's wedding in the time. With colour pictures. With colour um, pictures. I love how he's kind of like, oh, look at out there, that truck completely unguarded. <laughs> Would be a, a damn shame if someone stole that that truck. Be, and William's like, yeah, I know, but like we need to. And then like the dwarfs are kind of like, come on, just we're going to go. <laughs> that's how he gets a, gets around not fulfilling the order for the, yeah, so clever. Oh, it's great. It is, that's but another William, one of those like very cinematic moments, isn't it? You can see the buddy comedy where they're like, come on, no, quick, quick. William is so smart, but he does not understand certain things. Yeah, and he always needs to be, he needs to buddied up with someone a lot of the time. And I love that scene because it's him and, and Good Mountain. And there's a few good scenes with the two of them. And Good Mountain just is, is great. I like, you could have bit. just come across as another dwarf, but um, you really get a deeper sense of here's someone who's got, you know, they're really trying to do something for themselves. And they are very traditional in many ways as a dwarf, but great character. Meanwhile, a few things are going on as they're getting more paper. Uh, Otto's trying to figure out how to make coloured pictures, <laughs> which are just, oh, his experimentation. I love him. Oh, so good. But also they print in the next edition a reward notice for waffles. It's like $25 if you get the dog. And Sakurisa writes about the Inquirer. And there's a nice moment there where they work really late into the night, which... Look, as someone who's worked not on a newspaper, but on other writing and publishing projects, I am well familiar with that. Uh, not that it happens on this podcast, listeners. It does happen. 
I, that was really nice. And then he walks her home and he's sort of, he's so awkward, but he feels like he's got to say, look, you know, we're working together and I just want you to know that I don't, really not my type. I don't, we're not, this is not a thing. Uh, everything's all right. And you just, you know, he's trying to be nice and put her at her ease, but he just says it in the worst possible way. <laughs> if a man who's, whose business is words, he really kind of fails there, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But that's like the, the classic thing of like, if you're a writer, you can do nice words for other things, but when it comes to your own life or your own needs, it's just salad. Like, it's just, you, you cannot for a million dollars make the good sentence for when it's important in your own life. You've used up all your words. Yeah. 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 But I mean, this is a lot of things are moving at this point. The new firm go and try and get a werewolf to help them find the dog. That doesn't work out for them, but they see the newspaper. They come up with a new plan and go and visit the church in a scene that reminded me in very strange ways of Le Miserable. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. no, it's the silver candlesticks, but this does not work out the way that it does in the other book. But the conspirators also are like, okay, tomorrow we're electing a new patrician because Vetinari's been deposed because he's accused of murder. And William has this flash of inspiration in the middle of the night where he like steals his landlady's scales and goes and tries to weigh some coins. And that's where he has that nice scene with Good Mountain where he's talking with him and it comes out that, you know, I'm trying to get the money together so that we can get married and start our own life. So there's a lot of nice moments in that bit of the book. But then in the morning, as William's on the way to work, he meets Deep Bone, the the secret informant in a livery stable that is so big it has multiple stories. Yes, the Discworld equivalent of a multi-story car park. (laughs) Uh, there's so many Watergate references, it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but it's great. Anyway, so Deep Bone, uh, Gaspode in, in disguise, or rather just hiding away so that he can't tell where the voice is coming from, tells him he knows where Waffles is and he will bring him, but he wants more than $25 because, you know, this is dangerous. And he gives him a few little crumbs of, of info, including a question to ask Vimes. And then William covers a fire with Otto in a, in a nice sort of introduction for the fact that there's now a golem fire department uh, in Ankh-Morpork. But then they, they go back to the office and realise that, of course, hundreds of Ankh-Morpork citizens have seen the offer of a $25 reward for a dog and turned up with various, inverted commas, <laughs> dogs. Uh, and so it blocked the whole thing. I really like that nice moment where, because it's cool, but it's also a little uncomfortable when William says to Otto, can't you do something about this? You know, the whole creatures of the night thing. And Otto's like, that is very, that's very offensive. But yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) He gets all the dogs to shut up. Uh, It was great. Um, I really love that. Can we also um, just later on his Prince of Darkness, like the quote? Yeah, it's just. (laughs) And now he's so disappointed that the the weather and the geography in Eggmore Pork does not respond to the creepy things that you say. But when it does, when it does, it's so good. The payoff, though, even just as a reader, like I loved, I loved that passage. I thought that was, yeah, it was beautiful. Feel his joy. It was just, (laughs) it was so good. Uh, It's just a little taste of home for him. Mm. Oh, so good. I also like, actually, just before we go on, I really liked how when he meets Deep Bone, William sort of makes a few deductions about him that are wrong, but perfectly reasonable. He picks up that he said a few weird things, but he doesn't put two and two together and go, this must be that talking dog that everyone talks about. It must be real. He's like, must be a foreigner who doesn't quite get how idioms work. <laughs> it's like, that is a very reasonable thing to figure out. 
but also wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. For one of the others, it's got bells on, like the classic Pratchett line. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but with a dog amount of legs, which is great. Yeah, so good. But yeah, uh, the new firm show up, now disguised as a priest and a nun. <laughs> the enormous Mr. Chulips dressed as a nun. So stupid, but that, so but That line about how, oh, but no, that just reminds me of some of the nuns that... that <laughs> is, it, who, is it Sakarissa who says something like I that? I think it is. Yeah, like that's, it is. that's like the nuns that I used to know at school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, horrifying. Truth. Truth, indeed. This is their ruse. It's like, oh, we'll turn up and pretend we're missionaries, like, looking after wayward animals and we want to look after the dog. So they just start stealing them all, shoving them in all a sack. All terriers. But Mr. Pin is talking to William and says something that, I mean, he's already a bit suspicious, but then he says something that really tips William off that whatever it has happened, these are the guys who are behind it and they're dangerous. And this is the great thing where he signals to Good Mountain, uh, or Good Mountain signals to him by putting the type in. Which is a payoff from earlier in the book where, you know, William realizes you can tell what they're saying by learning where the letters are and watching their hands move the type around. It's just, it was great. Uh, and so he gets Otto and there's a moment where you're like worried that Otto's going to go crazy because he's already had a moment where he's almost lost his, his heaving bosoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, there's, there's the heaving bosoms moment. There's, a, there's the other one where there's some blood that gets spilled. But he doesn't do that. He turns up and he sets off the dark light land eels and it just freaks everybody out. All the animals run away and uh, Mr. Pin and Mr. Chillip also run away carrying their sack full of terriers. But it has a permanent effect on Mr. Pin. I'd totally forgotten this part of the book, but it just goes through him and shows him the truth of his own life and how he's basically been so awful to everyone. It doesn't affect Mr. Chillip in the same way, and it's implied this is because his brain no longer works properly because of all the drugs and weird stuff that he's done. But uh, Mr. Pin now becomes super paranoid and worried that his past is going to catch up with him, and it changes it changes him for the rest of the book. And I just, I'd forgotten that happened and I loved it so much. Because he's still believable. Yeah, he's still essentially the same person. But now he's like, wait, I've done all this awful stuff. Maybe, maybe that's going to come back to get me. But he doesn't really make amends or try and change his ways properly. He just tries to figure out how he can get away with it, essentially. Well, it's, it's still like, how does this affect me? Not, I feel bad about what I've done to mm. others which comes through later in a scene that contrasts with how Mr. Tulip handles the situation. Because, yeah, he's still very me-centric. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just him plus fear and paranoia. Yeah. And also, that uh, yeah. But, I, I mean, I still hate them because as they escape, they cut Otto's, Otto's head off. And so they're dead to me. Uh, they, get, they, they deserve whatever they get. Uh, Otto Otto's also okay. being undead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's all right. Comes back, and, and they fine. throw the terriers into the, fortunately, the ank <laughs> yes. where they bounced. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. They're very oh, they slowly sinking by, by the gang of gang of cool guys. Yeah, yeah, the canting crew. But Vimes shows up, having heard about all this, because they're supposed to be electing the new patrician today, and now there's like hordes of animals like running around the city, and they have a bit of a talk. He and William, after things get tense. And William sort of reveals what little tidbits he knows and finds out a bit more about the weird things that, that went on that give him a bit more of a clue as to what might have happened. And they find out about the new patrician, Mr. Scrope, of the uh, Leather Workers and Shoemakers so he, Guild. The one who makes the little jiggly things? Yeah. Oh, that was great. <laughs> I love that. And how it's a very family-friendly business. It's very always very nice. And they put everything in a bag for you. And I was like, this is 
great. Um, one of the naughtiest things that uh, Pratchett has put in a book as well, but I quite yeah. it was great. It was very respectful. I was very impressed, actually. Mm. And Otto almost loses it again because he sees that his camera's been crashed on the ground in the fracar and the... I can't believe I said fracar in, in the for real. Um, it was a rumpus. A rumpus. Obviously. A rumpus. Fair. Um, but they help him out. And uh, and then there's a great bit where William and Sakurisa have their big argument about their differing ideas about what the times should be about and how it should work. Because she's like, no, we should print the things that people want to read. You know, I agree with you. We should tell the truth, but we should we, we shouldn't be dabbling in all this politics stuff. We should be just, you know, people want to see their name in the paper. Let's do interviews and we'll write up about meetings. And we've been invited to go to Lady Solanchi's ball, which she's mentioned earlier. That's going to be great because everyone wants to hear about what the important people are doing and then they'll all buy our paper and maybe they'll all like us and we'll make more money out of them. And he's like, no, we've got to tell the proper truth. We've got to say, we've got to put the stories in that are important. This is important. And he's really convinced by this. And and also they have a bit of a discussion about his background and his class where he kind of talks about how, yeah, you know, look, my family is rich, but I'm I'm not. Like, I, I've tried to be different to them. and. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation that they have. And, like, because there isn't a correct answer, the book doesn't go, like, this is specifically what it is. Like, it's a constant conversation and about who it's for, and it's for a a lot of different things. And seeing, like, like, we haven't talked about where he lives and the breakfast table, seeing the real-time response of the public to the newspaper Mm. and the slow shift towards, like, them believing the tabloids or them not really, like, caring about the political news or veterinary's gotten away with it again or, like, they've clearly got their agenda. But, like, that's also a really interesting, I think, and important facet of this because he's watching how the public responds to this, but he still thinks it's an important thing to have out there and there's the whole thing about the public versus the people and how that's not necessarily the same thing. Mm. And, you know, Pratchett's writing this in 2000, which is well before you would see, you know, real-time social media reactions to news stories. Um, But also it was during, and he was one of the first authors to really embrace the internet and talk to his fans and find out what they thought of his own work. So I think he's drawing on the sort of middle ground there of like, I've written this thing and, I can, I'm talking to you. I can see what you think about it. Cause he was a, a lurker and he occasionally turned up and answered questions on the news group that sprung up to talk about his work. So I feel like that would have been weird when that started. It's also like that constant conversation, which I don't think anybody has a definitive answer to really. And it's crystallized in that, in a conversation, um, with the chairs and Mr. Slant where they say what is in the public interest is not what the public is interested in. Mm. And that, I mean, that's a debate that you're constantly having when you're in those spaces, right? Like, are we just doing this story because we think it's interesting in its own right? Or is it because it's something really important that we think people ought to know about? What is the difference? Where is that? Where is that difference? And, you know, the, the people read the Inquirer because the Inquirer, I'm sorry, because the, the stories are interesting and outlandish and exciting. But even when the actual true stories are exciting, like veterinary framed by shadowy figures from the city and so on, they just sort of, well, okay, it's important, but I'm going to go and read and go and look at the page with the funny vegetables on it. Yes. Yeah. Is this thing worth it in and of itself? Like he, you can you can kind of see him come to the conclusion that yes, it is worth it. You know, the public interest is important. It's just that all these other forces are kind of trying to tell him 
No, that's not whatever what people want. Yeah. Yeah, and it harks back to the thing that Vetinari says quite early on in the book too, is that people don't want news. They want olds. Mm. You know, they want to they want to have their prejudices and the ideas they already have confirmed. They don't want them challenged or to have to learn new things. And you see that around the table at that you know, in the in the boarding house where they're reading the stories, but most of the people around the table are just sort of interpreting them in a way that confirms what they already think. I think it's also a really interesting retrospective intervention into the debate around what the role of the media actually is in a society. And, I mean, at the moment I sort of feel like culturally we kind of expect the media to be a kind of activist force, but it's not in the – like, yes, William solves the mystery, but he knows it's actually not his job to solve the mystery – and, okay, so he put these things together, but he's not going to take credit for it because that's not what he's there for. He's there to tell the story about it. He's not supposed to be the actor in that situation. I think that's actually a really profound and really important point that, I mean, whether he's making it explicitly or I think I sort of feel like it's a bit more subtle, but I think it's a, it's a point that we would do well to remember a lot of the time when we're writing journalism as writers you know that we're not there to make the things happen we're there to talk about what has happened and to kind of Mm. give context to what has happened otherwise we are the story and that's not our role yeah yeah sorry that got like deep and the book is deep (laughs) it's good yeah it is deep and i mean they do i mean william and sacrissa come from these two different points of view on this both philosophically and practically but they kind of sort them out not really by either of them well, there is a bit of compromise because William says, okay, yeah, we'll get some more ads, <laughs> basically, is the main thing he compromises on. But she also kind of comes around to the idea that she can see how important this is to him and that there probably is something in it. And he probably is doing something good, even if she doesn't fully agree with or understand it entirely right now. Although by the end of the book, she's as much a you know a reporter as he is and clearly has got the bug. I mean, even now, I mean, at this point in the book, they're working until really late in the night. So, but he's like, well, I've got work to do. He goes home to get the key for her for his uh, family mansion because she wants to go to Lady Solanchi's ball. And he's like, well, you need a dress. My family's rich. My sister's got 50, 100 dresses. We don't ever even stay in the city anymore. So you just take one of hers. I'll give you the key and go and get one. So he goes home to get the key. And he also devises a way to get to his next meeting with Deep Bone without being followed by werewolf in the watch who he thinks is nobby by the way which which is reasonable very reasonable he doesn't look like he's entirely human so he's gonna be something else he meets with deep bone again and organizes a meeting with waffles which he does go to but gaspard realizes that the new firm are gathering up all the terriers in the city so he gets disguised (laughs) as an extreme makeover (laughs) (laughs) oh so good oh I could see that in my brain. It was so, it was so. And he's saying what he thinks are poodle noises, which I think <laughs> was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he calls himself Trixie Bell. What a great, great. I'm sure that's a reference to something as well, but I don't know what. It's, uh, that was, that was cool. It's just brilliant. That whole sequence, like, I could not get enough of Gasboat in this book. Like, yeah, it's just. Yeah. It's good stuff. As we've been talking about these different examples of. William coming to the wrong conclusion. It makes me think that there's there's a very very deliberate pattern in this book 
which is to show you all of these different examples of how you can have all the information, but it doesn't mean you will come to the right conclusions. Mm. Which yeah. is which is a comment itself on media and on, I guess, citizen journalism or journalism more generally, right? Like, just because you've laid out all the facts doesn't mean the conclusion is going to be the right one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes the, the job of the media is to just lay out all the facts and not provide you with a conclusion and to say, and we don't know what this means, but yeah. this is what we do know, you know. It's interesting that we've seen such a rise in opinion pieces where people don't use any facts most of the time. It's just all about, I'll tell you what everything means. And you're like, well, okay, but do you really know? And it's, it's just become such a dominant voice in so much of what happens, certainly in some of the mainstream media now, that a lot of that doesn't seem as considered as it once was. And this is why we turn to, uh, or a lot of people turn to, the sort of newer online places like The Guardian or The Saturday Paper or The Monthly or, or wherever, where they're trying to preserve that idea that if you are going to have opinion columns or if you are going to get into that deeper stuff, you've got to really carefully consider what that opinion is and what those conclusions are that you're drawing. You can't just print whatever somebody wants to say, which is sometimes how it feels in some of particularly the big papers here in Australia. That's what I think, like, you can have, like, two people can have the same set of facts and have a completely different interpretation of mm. those facts. That is opinion in a nutshell, right? Like, that is analysis. And that's why it's so important to have different voices, to to be clear when you don't know what all those facts lead to. Or, or just even just to say, well, you know, like, my experience of these facts may be different to yours. I mean, it, it's different to say, like, I dispute those facts, <laughs> But, yeah. you know, we could, we might be able to agree on the same facts, but we may have a completely different understanding of what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But we're kind of in the downhill run of the plot now, as it all comes to a head in a few different ways. William has his meeting with Deepbone and meets Waffles and gets the story of what happened. And now he knows, at least from Waffles' point of view, what happened, that there were two gods, as, <laughs> as Waffles calls the Patrician. I thought that was great. And and, mm. and uh, Gaspard's little uh, description of him is like, he's a really old school dog. <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that there were two of them and there were two other guys there. And he sort of is like, okay, I got, I, now he knows more or less what happened. He doesn't know who organized it because the conspirators have been very careful about concealing their identities, but he knows basically what the plot was and, and what has happened. And he decides to take Waffles back to the offices of the Times. Meanwhile, Mr. Pin and Mr. Chulip, who have had definitely enough, have had a big confrontation with Mr. Slant, where they have threatened him and said, look, we're over this. We're done. You didn't tell us there was a vampire working with these newspaper people. What's with this city? It's got werewolves and vampires and zombies. We're, we're done. You give us all of your money right now and we'll leave. And they kill his bodyguards. But Mr. Pin doesn't kill Mr. Slant, which is weird for him. And also during that whole sequence, there's several bits where they have these theological discussions where it's revealed that Mr. Tulip was brought up to believe that you have to keep a holy potato on a string around your neck. And as long as you've got your potato when you die, you, you'll be all right. Even if you've done horrible things, uh, as long as you were sorry. And he doesn't really know any more about it than that. And I'm like, I feel like I've met people who subscribe to a religion who maybe don't understand it any better than that either. So that makes, that made sense to me. Yeah. So they, they have that discussion and they're like, we're going to go back to the house where we've been staying that was provided to us by the conspirators. And we are going to kill Charlie, even though that's not what Mr. Slant and the conspirators wanted. 
and then we're going to go back to the Times office and we're going to get revenge on that vampire because Mr. Pin is aware that something has happened to him to make him paranoid and worried about the people following him or the things that he's done, and he blames Otto for it. So all that happens and they go back to their house, which turns out to be the DeWord family mansion. Because as we have as readers have probably figured out from various clues that we've been given, it's pretty clear Lord DeWord is behind the conspiracy by this point. William has not yet found out, although he does quite soon after this. And Sacharissa is taken hostage by Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip and brought to the offices where William arrives with Waffles. And they're like, great, now we'll kill all of you. But there's a kerfuffle with waffles it's a kerwaffle i guess and uh ben it's one of those things this book but, has actively stopped me from using those words in articles that I otherwise would have but i like the i like kerfuffle. yeah as in, I've, I've been on the precipice of using them like ooh, but the book says it's bad so <laughs> Does it describe them like a certain kind of rare fish that can only survive in certain waters? That's what yeah. those words are. Such a good description. But look, it all goes to shit, basically. Mr. Pin's crossbow fires as he's bitten by waffles and shoots a lamp, which explodes. It sets on fire the whole office. Some paint tins explode. The fire gets super hot and starts melting the lead in the press. The people who work in the Times manage to get out, but Mr. Pin and Mr. Chillip try to get out through the cellar. Now, previously, we haven't mentioned this, the dwarfs have dug a hole through the cellar through the underground streets of Ankh-Morpork, which is a real-life thing. That's that's how, I think it's San Francisco, parts of San Francisco are like that. They uh, have tunneled through to the Inquirer offices and found that none other than um, Cut Me On Throat Dibbler has been writing their stories. And they liberate him because he wasn't really happy working there because he's like, I can't believe I was working in a job. What is this? Getting what is this? Rage. Um Ooh. And uh, so they they sort of liberate him and convince him to sell ads for them instead because they're like, but it's okay, you can lie as much as you want in an ad. It's advertising. You get commission, it's not a wage. Yeah, and they'll, they'll pay him a commission to do it. So that was kind of cool. But they bricked it back up after they've been in. So there's no exit from the cellar. Mr. Pin and Mr. Chillip are stuck in there and the melting lead starts raining down in a very kind of terminator Which, kind of vibe mm, is amazing because like earlier when sakarissa touched one of the eels she saw it raining silver so she oh, saw yeah. this all happening that's beforehand. right i forgot about that and did she oh, say yeah. did she say it doesn't look like it's been burnt in here yeah something like that. and then she said she saw silver rain yeah yeah oh wow yeah there's a lot a lot about gets that. foreshadowed in this book that then yeah. kind of gets resolved later in a really kind of satisfying way i think and in that case, it's like probably 300 pages later. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a long way later. <laughs> yeah. And the paintings even, they mentioned that like way earlier on, and that's what causes the explosions and stuff. It's done very well. Yeah, because the officers, in inverted commas, of the Times are just out the back in a shed uh, behind the very terrible policeman's pub, which uh, the policemen only go to because no one else goes there, and it means they get left alone. <laughs> and I kind of love that the thing that traps the villains ultimately and dooms them is the fact that William was doing the right thing. Like, it would have been advantageous to have access to those tunnels and go around and poke around in places, but he's like, no, ethically, we got to, like, brick it all back up again and you, it's the wrong thing to do. And if he hadn't done that, they could have gotten out. Yeah. So it's him doing the right thing that stops people doing the wrong thing indirectly, which is, well, directly, indirectly, a bit of both. But yeah, yeah. totally. Can we talk a bit more about Mr. Tulip's potato? Yes. Just briefly. Yeah. Yes, because that is a sentence <laughs> that has been said. 
I, I have a question that maybe you guys who have been reading much more Pratchett much more regularly than me of late can answer. But my memory of the early books is that in Discworld lore, he establishes that what you believe comes true by dint of you believing it. So there are gods for all kinds of different religions and therefore what ha- what you believe in kind of happens to you after you die. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't for Mr. Julep. I he believes that the, everything will be okay because he's got his potato, but actually he has to spend a whole lot of time atoning. I'd yeah. argue that that is it being okay because, like, when they have that sort of beautiful flashback, well, upsetting flashback to him as a child where there's, like, the fear of war and he remembers being in a church and that's where mm. he kind of started to get an appreciation of beautiful things and an older woman telling him that if you have a potato you'll be okay and it turns out it's because they were kind of having a famine and it was not a religious thing it was just they were starving if you have a potato you'll be okay was his belief and because he's been twisted by all this trauma into this horrible person who's been trying to block out all this stuff for his whole life I kind of think that the opportunity in the afterlife to reset and become the person perhaps that he should have been over this time is everything working out it's like a second go before he is then reincarnated so like it's not everything will be okay in the immediate sense but i think it is it's okay in that everything you've done wrong in this life there's something redeemable in you which death also later says Mm. there's a chance Mm. for him to prove that and that that is everything being okay yeah I mean, I also think that he does a good job of setting Mr. Chula up as this kind of special case. Like, as Death says, Mm. you believe, but you don't believe in anything. So he's got this vague idea about having the potato and then everything will be all right. But he doesn't really have any conception of what will happen after he dies. Mm. He just knows if he's got his potato, when it happens, it'll probably be fine. And so he believes that very deeply, but he doesn't really have any conception of what should be happening after death beyond this sort of vague idea that it'll be okay. He also doesn't really have ethics either. Like, he, no. he, ha- he sort of has them around his art, right? Like, he, he yeah. like <laughs> you don't just give, what are you doing? You, you've got to dust that, you know? Like, there, there's, there, is, there, is a, there is a pattern there for, for an ethical framework, but he kind of doesn't apply it to his, his relationships with people, does he? So, mm. but he, and, he, and he also doesn't have a deity. Maybe that is the key. I think that is partly it because death asks him who's he's expecting to see and he says, mm. I don't know, I never really thought about it. And you're like, okay, yeah. I think the question you asked is also interesting applied to Mr. Pin because, like, what happens there really? Because he comes in with someone else's belief, but he also seems to believe it Like because he, he adopts the potato and everything will be fine thing, but he's not truly sorry and that's why he doesn't. it doesn't work out for him. But that's, like, if he does believe that it will, like, why doesn't? it well i don't think he really does like i think he's he's just looking for a loophole i don't Mm. think he really does believe that and so i think what he gets is is just it's because he doesn't really believe in anything except himself and trying to get one over on other people and again he hasn't really thought about what's going to happen afterwards it's like there's stories of people who supposedly convert back to whatever religion they'd rejected in life on their deathbed, which are usually not true, like the one that people tell about Darwin, which is not true. There's that idea that you don't really believe this, but now that you're about to die, what do they call it? Is it Pascal's Wager? Where it's like mm-hmm. you might as well believe in a mm-hmm. God because then if you die and there is one, you get to go to heaven. But if you don't believe in one, you don't. 
And it's I like the guy from The Mummy where he's got like every necklace. <laughs> oh, Benny. <laughs> That's the second reference yeah. to The Mummy that I've seen in 24 hours. <laughs> but it's a very good movie. I can't believe we haven't made one for many episodes. Uh, we, I mean, we, we should Mommy, do a spin-off. Sorry. Maybe we should, do a, we should do a special episode where we just Let's talk about The, the Mummy. mummy. <laughs> talk about yeah. The Mummy. I would just the first two, though. I, don't, I wouldn't even do the second one. Just the first one. The second one is so good. What is wrong with you? Okay, well, now we need to do it because we disagree. Yeah. But also, I haven't watched the second one for a long time, so who knows? I did learn just the other day that the Scorpion King 4 has just what? come out what? on some streaming service or another. Yeah, there's all these like cheaply made you know, sequels I don't think to I the even Scorpion knew that King. There was a, a second Scorpion King. I watched the, the first one because so the rock in it. And it's so good. Yeah. Like, the I, it's rock just is very... not in any of the other ones. It will not surprise mm. you to learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because it knows it's cheesy and it leans into that and that's why it's, just, it's fun. But yeah, okay. it sounds like we need to do another podcast where we watch all the mummy movies and no, not, uh, mm. we enjoy the first few, and then we talk about how bad the other ones are. Um, I just don't need to watch the Abominable Snowman one again. That was a bad time. No, fair enough. Liz, um, but can we, you do we, me a stream team on the mummy? <laughs> I absolutely could. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> to, sorry to interrupt you, Ben. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm into it. Uh, we should make this happen. Um, right. But but we should also get to the end of the book so we can get into some of the amazing questions that we got sent because um, we, we are running out of time. So from this point, it all goes wrong for them all because trapped under the trap door, Mr. Pin realizes that they're going to get burned by the lead, but there's not that much lead, so it's not going to go very high. He just needs something to stand on. So he kills Mr. Tulip and takes his potato and stands on him because, as he says, I was not born to fry. And it turns out he's got this horrible fear of being burned. Um, so he doesn't I missed want it that, to happen. So that makes it, yeah, yeah, okay. And so he manages to survive. Everyone else waits out the fire because it burns very hot, but then burns itself out and leaves sort of bits of the place completely unburned, which, again, I think is drawing on Pratchett's experience as a journalist. Having covered fires, he knows that this is real. Like, sometimes the fire just weirdly doesn't burn certain parts of a building. And finally, Chekhov's spike comes into play. Yeah, because mm. Mr. Pin, like, bursts up out of the trapdoor and tries to attack... Uh, uh, tries to attack William, uh, and William is able to defend himself because, as previously established, he did sword fighting at uh, Hugglestones, the terrible <laughs> private boarding school that he went to. Which it just reminded me, it was like the Assassin's Guild bits in uh, Pyramids, just worse. <laughs> like it was just like I feel like I've been to that school briefly. Thankfully, I didn't go there for my entire education, but I am glad to have escaped. I mean, oh. It's basically English public school, isn't it? Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, bullheads in rugby and um, the only way to become a man is to be beaten up or hide. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I went to I went to the Australian equivalent of one of those schools briefly. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, mm. I, I got out and it was, yeah, it was a terrible experience. I mean, it was a school at which a few years after I left... A boy was killed because he was being forced by the prefects to do a midnight run in the nude, and he ran, had to go across the street in the middle, of, and he got hit by a car. And oh you're my like, God. this is, this shit is fun. <laughs> like, this is not okay. This is what this leads to. And it's not until something like that happens that people go, oh, it's bad for you. It's like, no, the whole thing is bad for you. Everything that happens culturally and socially in these institutions is awful. But anyway, let's not get into that too much. Anyway, he stabs us to pin. With the spike from his desk, which is so great. Which he almost impaled his own hand on earlier in a bit that I was was horrifying to me. Oh, but uh, and sorry, it's just one moment because like it's just it's a beautiful thing because like stories getting spiked and like 
that's the end of him in the plot? Like, yes. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that. That's great. Like in the living plot, but <laughs> as as a, as a primarily digital journalist, I did not know until somebody who had worked at old school newspapers told me that spikes were an actual thing that you have in the newspaper because that's where, yeah. like, you write for the spike. You're writing a story that you know is not actually going to make it into the paper, and they just that's where they put it. The piece of copy goes on the spike. This is a, they often make them out of plastic that if you hit it with a solid object will bend, but if you're holding a piece of paper on two sides, it will pierce it so that you can't like impale yourself on them, which is which is probably for the best. Health and safety it's like laws. Like how Jaguar cars, um, they for a long time weren't allowed to have the Jaguar anymore because it hit a pedestrian. <gasps> it was real bad. But oh. now they've got them so that if you hit it, it turns. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, For a long time, the Jaguar was replaced with just like a flat disc that said Jaguar. No. Now that's a thing that you both know. <laughs> that's <Thanks>. horrifying. <laughs> now welcome. I'm wondering what the Rolls Royce little angel thing would do to you. And Ooh. now I know why they don't exist anymore either. But look, this is this is where the plot all wraps up because William finds the disorganizer. We had mentioned earlier. So when they... When no, Clippy. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Slant, the lawyer forces Mr. Pin and Mr. Chillip to do what he wants because he's got all this dirt on them and he's going to, like, release to the authorities and get them arrested for stuff they've done. And so Mr. Pin decides he's going to get the same kind of dirt on Mr. Slant by buying a disorganizer, the Clippy character, and using it to record some of their conversations. So, again, it's Watergate. And William finds the disorganizer, which almost erases itself. (laughs) Do you want me to erase my memory? Y-N. I imagine him saying Y-N out loud. (laughs) It was very funny. And he plays it back. And finally, William discovers who is behind this. So he goes to the secret meeting place. He knows where his father would have been doing the meetings. Not at the mansion, but at another place. Or is it? No, it is in the mansion, isn't it? But it's just upstairs. I couldn't quite figure it out because, like, because he said your mum liked this place, so it's not the men's club. So maybe it is their house. It. I couldn't quite get my grasp on it where it was. It would make sense for it not to be their house because that would be a bit of a giveaway if the conspirators are also not supposed to know who each other are. Um, But I don't Mm. know if that's clear. They might know who each other are. They just don't let anybody else know. Um, But anyway, he confronts his father. And there's the great bit where, because they also get the the rubies that. the new firm have been paid off with by Mr. Slant. So they use those to rebuild the paper and he throws one of the bags of rubies at his dad's feet, having learned of the dwarf custom. He says, here you go, this will pay for my upbringing, all the years you sent me to school and all the things that you... And now I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And I was just like, fuck yes. That's <laughs> great. So I good. loved it. Because um, oh, his dad is a massive racist. I don't think we mentioned that. His dad oh, is like yeah. the worst racist there possibly is. That that is yeah. actually a really strong thread through the book is just how easy, easily racism comes to a lot of people, and um, mm. just how insidious it is. And and I I think that I think it's really interesting how subtle, how subtle and yet persistent that part of the narrative is. Mm. Yeah, and not just from like I think you know I think Pratchett. It's interesting because when we read some of his books, there's a couple of books where we're like, I don't think he's a- he's clearly not aware of how racist some of the things he's writing are. Mm. But by the time you get to this book and a couple of the other ones, like, you know, the, the Johnny books are a good example too, he's really dealing with it with a lot of nuance. And in this book, you know, you've got the main hero of the book having to consciously undo his own racist thoughts that he's been brought up with. And it is spoken about to him by both uh, the dwarfs and by Otto 
saying that you have all these things, you know, this is how you were brought up, but we see that you're making an effort to not do it. I mean, there's a bit, you know, he's getting cookies for it, I guess, is, yeah. is how we would describe it now. So it's not a perfect representation of how but we should approach anti-racism. But it's very good for the times written particularly, and it's really amazing to see that evolution of Pratchett's own awareness of what he's writing and how he's writing about it. Hmm. And because William's been able to overcome these prejudices that he's been brought up with, he's made these great friends. And so Otto has like decided to go with him. I think he might be in trouble. And he sure is because his dad decides, well, I can't have you telling anyone about this. So just going to have to kill your son. Uh, no, he's going to ship him off, isn't he? Oh, that's he? right. No, he's going to press gang him. Yeah, he's going to send him yeah. to like 4X or something. That's yeah. right. Uh, that'll maybe he'll straighten you out. He's still got this belief that, no, you just got things wrong and you'll get, that's right. Um, yeah. but Otto fights off the assassins and then William, yeah, does the thing with the rubies and, and he's like, I'm done with you, but I'm not going to say it was you. He hmm. does protect his own family name and he says it's because it's not just your name, it's my name and it's mum's name and I'm not destroying us because of you, but you're done and you never come back to this town or I will. So he kind of has his, revenge in a way but he's making a big choice to not reveal who the conspirators are even though he knows which is an interesting i think it's like the biggest moment where he doesn't tell the truth i guess in the book yeah he doesn't tell all the truth yeah yeah it's not because he's not lying he's just not telling everything i actually found that scene with his father one of the least convincing parts of the book um Mm. i think it kind of it felt like it flip-flopped like like, like Terry didn't quite know whether he wanted him to be a total tyrant or to be kind of have a bit of heart or not. And so, and so I sort of felt the exchange was a little bit, and it fell a bit flat for me. I'm like, the, the comedy is great and Otto is great with his fisticuffs and, and his, you know, superhuman strength, actually. <laughs> so like every punch. <laughs> the bit where he just casually just punches flattens. the guy behind him or something. It's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, but I just, yeah, I sort of felt like it, it was, it sort of felt like it does sometimes in books where the writer has kind of got themselves into a corner. They know they need to get from A to C, but B is proving difficult. And so, so they've got to make a couple of decisions that don't really sit with the characters in the rest of the book. I mean, it, I think maybe it's partly because Lord de Word isn't really a fully fleshed character, so we don't actually know how he'd respond, you know, to his son kind of calling on Judy. But, like, the, the way he has been sort of yeah. written earlier in the book, you don't expect him to have any sympathy. You don't expect him to be like, oh, okay, well, no, you can, you can, you can live. Like, I actually thought that he would be like, no, that's it, yeah. you know, off with his head. I didn't expect him to give the money back either. Um, no, I thought he'd take that. <clears throat> so I just, I, I don't know. There are a few things that just didn't ring true for me there, funnily okay. enough. That's interesting because it did ring true for me and maybe it's it's some of my own personal experience coming in there, but I've definitely known people whose sort of form of, of patriarchal kind of authority that they invest in means that they think that they are magnanimous and generous. And so they do do things like that, even though uh, because they have this sort of weird sense of the right thing to do that comes out in really odd ways where it's most of the time it's clearly like being a jerk, but every now and then their kind of personal moral code, which is so messed up, aligns with the actual right thing to do in little ways. So, I, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, but I feel like I've met people like Lord DeWood. Mm. 
And I, when I say people, I mean men. I've met men like Lord DeWord. I found myself wondering if things would have been different had William's older brother, Rupert, survived. Because mm. now, like, he's his last surviving son. So he might be like, well, I must keep him alive at all costs because of the personal moral code that you mentioned, Ben. But at the same time, I also felt that the interaction didn't quite ring true. And I, fe- I, fe- I came away from it a bit confused about really what had happened or what people's motivation was, like why he, what did he leave because he was worried about the threat of being exposed? Did he want to, because like, I read one thing that said, like a plot summary that just said, oh, um, when he found out that the assassins had tried to kill William, he was mortified and decided to, to take himself out of the country. I'm like, that's not what happened. Like that's, that's like he was mortified, but that's not why he left. And I'm not, I don't feel like I fully grasp why he mm. left. And the closest I can get to it is protecting the good family name was, was the thing that convinced him. Yeah. I mean, I did feel like William is true to his threat that if his dad doesn't leave, he is going to expose him and destroy the family. And I think that is the thing that really motivates his dad to leave. And that's why he doesn't even care about the money. He's only leaving because he's like, you, oh, you he's know. got money. But he also sees that that's where he sort of sees a spark of himself in, in William and that he's, he's willing to destroy himself for something bigger than himself, even though what DeWord cares about is a sort of really you know, fucked up thing that he believes in, that he thinks is bigger than himself, this idea of how the world should be. But, yeah, I don't know, that made sense to me. I mean, it's interesting contrast to Fifth Elephant, where at the end Vimes doesn't say the pithy line because he knows that would make him a murderer. Mm. Whereas in this book, William does get to say the pithy line, where he says, like, because he's one of the things that clues us in as the readers earlier on that the word is the guy, is the repeated use of his phrase, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And then William at the end is like, well, the truth has got its boots on now. I think it makes sense as not like a, I'm doing a Arnold Schwarzenegger pithy line at the end of the book. It's more like, you've said this to me my whole life. Well, now here's the consequences of what you've taught me. I think that paid that off for me. I thought that felt okay. But yeah. And he's having the final word. <laughs> <laughs> and he is he is the final word, right? Because he's the only oh, son. Yeah, yeah, because his sisters would yeah, take oh, the name. patriarchal yeah. name taking. Yeah. So, so dumb. <laughs> but I mean, then we get this sort of, you know, the, the finishing off of the book is that William publishes his story saying all the things that he wants to say about it, giving the credit to the watch for figuring out what happened, which ingratiates him with, with Vimes. They uh, pay off the printers. Well, they don't pay them off. They kind of threaten <laughs> uh, and pay off the printers at the Inquirer to use their printing press to print their next edition until they can get a new one. Um, and they rebuild the offices and they are going to get back in business. And I love that it ends with William and Sakharissa just not being able to stop doing news. Yeah, they're trying like, to have noodles, but no. there's, yeah, Carrot has to save an old lady from a truck. Is is there the suggestion, like, obviously there's the bit earlier in the book where he just straight up says to her, look, I'm, uh, nothing's going to happen. And she's like, well, you don't really know how to talk to women, do you? But there's a couple other things in the book that kind of suggest maybe there's going to be a relationship there. And, I, and I, I feel like there isn't, but I also feel like in a way Pratchett wanted to have his cake and eat it too with that. Because there's this sort of faint suggestion at the end that maybe that, you know, they're giving each other meaningful looks. And there's that bit where he pushes her out of the way when the new firm first come to the Times office and they end up on top of each other and there's a little bit of, you know... I mean, he only writes about how William feels about that, as is so often the case in these books. But I don't know. I thought they'd end up together. 
but also I'm not convinced of that. I think that was where I went towards the end of the book, but yeah, maybe they just bone every so often at the Christmas party. <laughs> maybe, oh, no. maybe it's kind of like a productive tension. They are kind of united in this weird way because they have this compulsion towards newspapers and journalism and that is that is a compulsion i think for them Mm. and so so they are kind of bound together in that way but it's not actually sexual it's kind of more about Mm. like creative and collaborative disagreement and kind of friction rather than erotic they're like Mulder and scully yeah, yeah, except Mulder and Scully don't Mulder and Scully get together repeatedly. They do, and it ruins it. It ruins, ruins it, it, right? There's, it's because, like this should not be how it is. <laughs> but I do think this. I do think so much of this book is an exercise in tension, and that is a thread of tension that runs through the book. Will they? Won't they? Will they? Won't they? But it's kind of not really important. I don't mm. think it's about their characters and how they're kind of trying to negotiate the world. But also, I think it kind of it does lean into that sort of like what we were what you were saying before is about when you're a writer, you can make all these beautiful phrases for your day job and then you actually have to use words in your real life and you can't find them. <laughs> yeah. Like We can represent the world in, in this particular way on the page but actually bumble through our day-to-day lives. Um, and I sort of think that that's part of what is happening with William anyway. Like, Sakharissa is much more on the ball. Like, she can write the story, she can also sub-edit, she can write a cracker headline, you know, she's also, you know, managing stuff for her dad. Like, it's all... She's she's kind of got it together in a way that he doesn't quite realise how together she is, I don't think. Mm. On reflection, it's not a sexual tension. It's a kind of much more complex thing that's going on mm. between the two of them. Yeah. And, I mean, the only clue we get, I think, later on, like in, in the going postal, she kind of flirts with Moist in one of the times she's interviewing him. So I think she there's She flirts a... with everyone, though. Well, that's, that's kind true. of her thing. Yeah, that's how she gets half of her news, right? So yeah. all these young men will come and tell her things. It's great. But I don't think she flirts with them, does she? She realises it's something no. she can use later, but it's like young men want to talk to me and they tell me things. I feel like yeah. if 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 more had been made of her, like, using her feminine wiles to get the story, it would have come across as really sexist. And mm. it kind of doesn't. Yeah, it just sort of... Yeah, she's a bit oblivious to why that happens. Yeah. But she's just sort of making the best of it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, hmm. that's a fair point. Um, but yeah, I, well, I was, I found the ending <laughs> very satisfying, uh, on pretty much all counts, uh, and knowing that the, the times goes on to be this sort of background presence in basically every, what, you know, every Agmore Pork set book from now on, particularly the Moist Von Liquid ones, but also some of the watch books too, is great. Are there any favorite bits anyone wants to read out before we get into the questions? I enjoyed when, I was about to say moist when um when William offers Gaspard another fifty dollars on top of their existing fifty and the guy goes, What, fifteen? He's like, No, no, it's a hundred And I was like, Oh, that's really funny and I was like, Oh, that's actually really smart because like it's still fifth so like it's you could conceivably believe that like another fifty is like just added a teen to the end of it and there, there you go. go. So it's like a rational silly thing. So, yeah, there's so many good quotes, but, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that one. That is a good one. I don't have one that I want to read out, partly because I can't find it, but there is a bit that I noted when I was reading it. It's kind of a recycled idea that he, not knowing off the top of my head, when the Tiffany Aching books were first published, I think this might have come first. It's that, that concept of words that sound like things would sound like 
if they made a noise. Yes. It comes up in here, <laughs> but it's also a really key point in the first Tiffany Aching book around the word Susurus. Yeah. I think. Which is later than this. Yeah. Yeah. It's about uh, three years later. I think it's, I think it's around Susurus. Anyway, I, it's yeah. something that I have never forgotten. Like, it's a concept I've never forgotten. So when it, when he, when he, when he said it in here, I was like, oh, hang on. You said that before. And I remembered it. <laughs> but I was that the word glimpse was, one of those words, right? Yeah. There's a thing where in one of the books where he talks about words, any word that starts with the letters gl and like glint and gleam and glimpse. And I swear it's in one of the really early ones as well as in the Tiffany Aching book, but I've never been able to find it. So listeners, if you know which book that it's in, I think I might've asked this before, but I would love to find that if you know where the reference to those words are other than in The We Free Men. Sorry, listeners. I beat you to it. The passage I'm thinking of is in Equal Rights. There should be a word for words that sound like things would sound like if they made a noise, he thought. The word glisten does indeed gleam oily, and if there was ever a word that sounded exactly the way sparks look as they creep across burned paper, or the way that lights of cities would creep across the world if the whole of human civilization was crammed into one night, then you couldn't do better than coruscate. Oh, and to avoid having two footnotes in rapid succession, the answer to the question Steph is about to ask is yes. See the show notes for more information. It's an idea he's come back to a few times. And he originally wrote the Susurus thing was a thing he wrote for a writer's festival. Uh, and it? then he put it into the book. Yeah, uh, you can find it in the collection of his uh, non-fiction writing. Do you know if this... I haven't looked this up, so tell me if this is true. That privilege means private law. I don't know if that's true. That is a great bit, and I really liked that because I'm like, yeah. that, that's a good definition if that's the origin of the word. But I, I don't know if that's true. I'll look that up and put it in the show notes, okay. listeners, so you will find out. I feel like he wouldn't include that, something like that, and then be like, that is literally what it means, if it was not literally what it means. And it's the yeah. kind of man who does his research. But I did think it was a really great and relevant encapsulation of that concept and interesting um, way to think about it too, rather than just this kind of floaty idea of like people who have more than others. Private law, like owned yeah. law is, yeah, is very interesting. Definitely. The, look, there were loads of good bits for me. I really liked the Bursa stuff at the start. Where dried they, frog pills. They explain how the dried frog pills work, which is that he doesn't stop hallucinating. He just starts hallucinating that he's sane. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And also, and you he, know, he is a wizard. Yeah. So he can fly. If he hallucinates, he can fly. So that I loved all the stuff with him. And we find out his name as well. <laughs> what get his was it? Name. I forgot. Yeah. Uh, Dr. A.A. Dinwiddie, DM, 7th, D. Thal, B. Occult, M. Cole, BF. Uh, we don't find out what any of those degrees are, but... <laughs> We can imagine. We can imagine. Oh, the definition of the word photographer is in there because, you know, on the disc it's iconography because they've got a little imp painting it. It's not really about the light, but Otto's getting into the light. So he also refers to himself as a photographer and he goes to define what it means. And then they say, oh, it's from the old word photos in Latation, which means to prance around like a pillock ordering everyone about as if you own the place, <laughs> which I've met photographers like that. There's so many other good bits. I love veterinary speech about the future of war and how war is no longer fought with guns, but now it's fought with money. And in the future, maybe it will be fought with words, which I think, you know, obviously also it will still be fought with, with weapons, but 
I thought that was that was a good speech. And the bit where he describes the new firm as doing good cop, bad cop, but with surprisingly no cops involved. <laughs> <laughs> and so many, so many other things. There's a great footnote about Mr. Windling right near the end, because one of the other things that happens at the end, of course, is William goes back to his boarding house and he has one last dose of the dudes around the table reading the paper and he just loses it with the guy who's a total dick about everything and asks him, who says that, Mr. Windling? Who is it who says this thing that you're talking about? And there's a great footnote about him earlier in the book, which I also really enjoyed. So, yeah, there's just so many good bits. We can't possibly cover them all, but we should get into some questions. So we've got a question from Amy via Twitter. Do we think that this is the scariest villain of all the Pratchett's, like from the new farm? No. Do you think <laughs> she didn't specifically say the new firm? That was my interpretation of it, but she might also mean like the whole conspiracy. You don't think so, Steph? I don't know. I think that the auditors are the scariest. Oh, good pick. Yeah. They all, they always creeped me out. Yeah. Who's the one who thinks in italics? Because he's pretty frightening. Is that Is a it death? Could be death, or it could be Mr. Teotimi from Hogfather. I find him pretty horribly frightening. But the auditors, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. They are kind of horrendous, aren't they? He's written so many good villains, and you really hate them all. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the ones around this time are the ones you hate the most, you know? I, 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 um, You know, Mr. Tulip is a villain, and I didn't hate him. I really liked him. Yeah, but you do hate Mr. Pin. Yeah, you hate Mr. Pin, but I think you're meant to hate Mr. Pin and not to hate Mr. Tulip. You're meant to see the yeah. redeemable in Mr. Tulip, but not in Mr. Pin. And that just makes Mr. Pin even worse. I wonder if like Mr. Pin is, and I'm, I'm possibly going way too year 10 English on this, but I don't know if it's, um, he's called Mr. Pin because he's like the, you pull a pin out of a grenade and he's what makes Mr. Tulip worse. Ooh, I like that. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know if that's too deep a look but that's i kind of kept wondering if that was going to become a thing at some point like if there was going to be an explosion or and it was going to be like that's kind of yeah that's how i viewed his name mm. all right so the next two questions i'm going to read together so first one is from nicola 88 by instagram who says this was the book where my discord view shifted and i really noticed the changing technology prior to this my view of the discord was medieval in nature with some limited tech the truth made me realize that an industrial revolution had already begun. So wondering where you first noticed the shifting technology to follow this up. Um, this is from Sky Garland, also on Instagram, who noticed this too. I don't think I've ever really thought about it before, but reading this one along with the podcast, it made me wonder about the time frame that Discord was in. Does it follow our timeline or does it jump like medieval to industrial revolution and also what the scale of it is? Because it feels very fast compared to the round world. So yeah, basically looking at when did we notice the shift in Discord and what? how does it sort of timeline-wise compared to Round World? I, it's interesting because it's always been a bit weird. Like, even in the mm. very first book, in The Colour of Magic, you know, you have a character showing up wearing spectacles. And obviously, spectacles are a fairly old technology, but they still place it... Well, I mean, the point is that he's a character coming from the equivalent of Asia to the equivalent of Europe. And as we know, there's plenty of things that got invented outside of Europe that Europeans had no idea about. But still, you know, there's little elements of that. And even, you know, by the time of Men at Arms, which is about 10 books before this one, Cuddy the Dwarf is able to build like a little mechanical helmet for Detritus to like cool down his brain. So there's always been little elements of technology in there. And I think this is where we start to see uh, this and, you know, like the fifth element where the clax comes in. 
are where we start to see that sort of really affect the society. Up until now, it's mostly been like Leonard de Quirm, you know, building stuff in his little laboratory that doesn't get out into the world because the patrician knows how much it would destroy everything. Like in Jingo, he builds a submarine, you know, so it's always been there. But these books are where it's almost like in the disc world, the way it worked is people had all these ideas and they could build all these things, but they didn't. And now there's this sort of rapid expansion of these things getting out into the world and changing the culture in Ankh-Morpork, at least. Like, it, what's happening on the rest of the disc sort of follows Ankh-Morpork, really. But, yeah, that's how I think about it, anyway. I feel like the Watch books, even from the very first one, are kind of modern. Like, they're not... Like, like you were saying, you know, there are medieval elements in there, and, and I can totally understand why, particularly given the early books, you might see the, the whole world like that. But... I feel like that sensibility is so noir and so kind of of the city that even when they're not really focused on technology per se, I feel like they are modern. Mm. They are modern narratives, modern stories. It's a modern kind of sensibility. So I can't say I ever really noticed the technology because I feel like I was already kind of reading some of those stories, if you see what I mean. Obviously, like he makes it like a much more kind of explicit thing as the books go along because they come become a serious plot point. But I sort of feel like it, the sensibility was starting much earlier than maybe the explicit focus on the technology was. Yeah. And it, it, Angmorpork's always felt like a mashup of Victorian London and, like, New York or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I get what you mean. And they get, um, like, basically the internet and newspapers before they get trained. So I feel like it's <laughs> it's mixed around quite a lot. Yeah. I'm just going to quickly mentioned we had a comment from Alex Hoberg, um, which is about the prejudices in the book. And we had a quite a good discussion about that, I think, about Pratchett's evolving depiction of race and things throughout things. So that addresses that question. I just wanted to mention that that was also raised. Next question is from Shut Up Banks via Discord. This is the first time we meet Vimes from someone else's point of view. Does he come across as a little bit of a fascist in this book, or is it just because we're seeing the story through William's eyes? I wouldn't go so far as fascist for him in this book. He's never been a fascist. Yeah. I, I think he's just, he, he is what, like, he's grumpy and he cares about the watch and you see him protecting that. Yeah. I think he'd be far less suspicious of William, actually, if he wasn't clearly a toff. Yeah. Like, Vimes knows who he is. He knows who his family is. And I think that's partly why he feels like he needs to treat him with disdain. <laughs> like, I, it's not ever mentioned by William, I don't think, but I, I certainly got that impression. And I think he's just like, are you going to get in my way of doing what needs to be done to protect people? Hmm. This one is from Joel Mullen via Discord. Slant is a frequent occurrence in Morpork novels. He's often presented as only caring about the letter of the law, but in the truth, he really steps this up. So what are your feelings about him? I wouldn't have minded if he got set on fire in this book, to be honest. <laughs> As a journalist, you need a lawyer. And so I kind of, it's like, it's interesting that he's only kind of pulled into service of the paper, like under duress, really. He is pulled into service of the paper, isn't he, at some point? Am I getting that yeah, wrong? Yeah, because they, they end up blackmail not, him. Yeah, they yeah, blackmail they him. Not revealing it. his part in it. That's like right. They keep all the conspirators a secret. Mm. Um, and yeah, he agrees to, uh, yeah, he agrees to help them out. So that's good. But yeah, I just, yeah. But I, I respect he's got a code that he sticks to, even though that code is very malleable in other ways. Letter of the law, like Joel said, which is not always, like, I think it's easy to fall into 
what's legal and illegal versus what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. There's many zombie characters, and he's one of the sort of bigger ones, I guess, but I still find that I want to know what his deal is. Like, why is he back from the dead? Like, what? I, I kind of want to know more about him. And so I'm glad that he keeps showing up, but I, we never really find out what... I mean, I think it's kind of implied that the joke is he's a lawyer and he was just doing lawyer stuff and he died and he didn't really notice because it wasn't important to him. <laughs> like, the, the lawyering was what was important, which is a pretty rough description of lawyers. I know many lovely lawyers, but, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, but it's kind of he's he's, he's kind of the personification of dry law, isn't he? Right, like mm. he is. <laughs> everything about him is kind of grey and well. I mean, I I just think of dryness when I think of him. Like it's a, a state of being for him as much as anything. And so the fact that he doesn't die when he's supposed to die, he just kind of keeps going. Mm. And he he's kind of he's kind of a walking metaphor, really. He does break the law pretty convincingly in this book, though. Like, he's not upholding any laws by supporting this conspiracy and engaging Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip. He's manipulating law, though. Mm, I suppose that's true. Like, he's, mm. he's, he's, he's very deliberately not being told particular things or not walking through the minefield very, very carefully. But that's his mm. job. And he, he makes a point of that in a lot of cases. So he might not be a very nice person but he is also using the law to his own advantage. Um, the next question comes from Bell via Discord. Um, Sakharissa suggests expanding into magazines. What magazine would you like to see on the Discord? And we've got some notes. Um, one from Lachlan is there's several pin magazines later in the Moist One Liquid books, and Shut Up Banks notes that there was also bows and ammo in a couple of novels. So we've got That's those. True. That's true. Although I got the feeling that the pins magazines were, were pretty – they were like zines. fanzines. They were zines. Because the one that uh, Moist buys is the one that Stanley makes himself, <laughs> which which the other pin enthusiast thinks is a bit weird. Uh, but yeah, it's um, a good question. What, would, what what kind of magazine do you think the Discord needs? I'd like to see Sybil do something about her dragons, but like yes, but, but yeah, oh, the dragons magazine, yes, but like with featured dragon of the week, get to know like one of the like it's just yeah, I just think she could do some really good stuff with her Emmas. I think they definitely need a technology magazine, like the equivalent of Wired. It could be called, like, Clacked or something. Steamed. And, uh, steamed, <laughs> yeah. And it and it's all about... And they could do, like, stuff about imps for iconographs, and they could do, yeah, the trains and the clacks and all that kind of stuff. I think that would be amazing. An iconography magazine. Mm. When Otto oh, gets yeah. his colour really working well, then it's just, like, pretty pictures the whole way through. Oh, so oh his would be so... He could do a hell of a coffee table book. Totally, as well. right? Can oh, you imagine wow. some of those dark light photos in like glossy? I want him to keep doing it. To <laughs> be you, honest, do you think he? Do you think he would? Do you think he'd secretly be doing it, or do you think that would be you know giving into his dark vampire side too much? I think if like it's not a vampire thing, I, I think it's yeah. I, I think it's his dark photography thing. Like he's getting too much into the art of photography. He's pushing yeah. the boundaries of his form. Mm. Yeah. He's going into uncharted waters. Yeah. I just want to mention too, Belle also did some research on this because she didn't understand how magazines existed. And I, I should have remembered this when I was getting my years wrong about newspapers because she researched it on Our World. The first magazine was published in 1663 in Germany. The earliest news sheets were published as early as 1566 in Venice. And newspapers took off at various times, at least in English-speaking countries, 1609 in Germany, 
1690 in America and uh, 1695 in uh, the UK, but she wasn't sure where it might have been done earlier elsewhere outside of Europe. And as we learned in Australia, 1803. 1803, yeah, exactly. So much earlier than I thought. I, I feel very embarrassed. Belle, I'm sorry. You did some great research. I should have been paying more attention. So the next question comes from Sven via Discord. Since Douglas Adams often is compared to Terry, do you think both styles compare because they're based on a keen eye for our real world and translating that to a fantasy world? This one I'm going to pass over to you guys. I have an opinion about this, sort of, yeah. an opinion about yeah. the comparison. I think Douglas Adams did something that Terry Pratchett perfected. I think they're both of a mode, but I think Terry Pratchett really made it sing in a way that Adams didn't. That's my controversial opinion. No, I look, I'm a huge Adams fan. And I um like to the I'm one of those people who has visited his grave. Like oh, this God. is and I met him <laughs> once. Like I I his his The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the most influential book in my life. Uh for various reasons. Should have let you answer but, this question first. <laughs> no, not at all. Because I agree with you to an extent, because I think Pratchett is a much better fiction writer than Douglas Adams. If you read Douglas Adams as nonfiction, He's got a very keen, you're absolutely right, Sven, he's got a very keen eye for the real world and, and making it funny. I think where he falls down, he's, he can translate situations and ideas into a fantasy, but he can't write a plot to save himself. Like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is hilarious, but it's just a series of things that happen one after another that if you were to plot them out, don't really make a great story. But which, you know, is again, probably looking at the real world and translating it into a fantasy world, because that's how our lives are, right? But I don't think he's a great fiction writer in that sense. I think his jokes are very good. And I actually, I debated whether to use this episode as episode 42 to announce that I was going to do a Pratchett-style podcast about the books of Douglas Adams, which I do want to do. Now I'm saying it not as an announcement, but as a, would you like me to do that? Because if enough people do and they'll pay for it, then I'll do it. But I can't possibly do it without getting paid for it at this stage. But it's, yeah, I, I get what you mean. And I think it's really a shame that we didn't see Adams keep writing and see where he would have ended up because he was really very young when he died. I mean, so was Pratchett, really, but Pratchett had about 20 more years on Adams. And unlike Adams, Pratchett was a writing machine. Like, you know, he was writing two or three books. I mean, he released five books in his most prolific year um, that he wrote in the previous couple of years, whereas Adams, like, famously took years and years and years to write just one book at a time. <laughs> he hated writing. There's some great stuff in that book I mentioned at the top of the show, 42. There's one that got reproduced in, I think it was a, a Guardian UK article about the book, um, w- about him just writing about how much he hated writing. He absolutely We've hated it. all written it. a piece like that. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's the worst best. But he like wrote heaps of them. Like he hated it the most of all of us. So I think there's a bit of that there going on too. So it's an interesting comparison, but it's I think they're more different than many people give them credit for as I, well. I do think what kind of does unite them, which is not so much stylistic but can sometimes appear similarly stylistic, is uh, a real keen understanding of the absurd and mm. an appreciation for that and try and like a, a desire to work that into their work and balancing it with believable stuff and realistic stuff as well. Yeah, and seeing that yeah. as, a, as a way to comment on the world more generally, yeah. you know. And I think that's why people find both writers' works so profound and so um, interesting 
because they have this ability to translate that observation that they make about the absurdities of the world into onto the page. It's actually really, it's very hard to do and really, really exciting when you do see it. Yeah. So we got so many good questions this time and we don't have time for all of them, which is heartbreaking. So we've got time for one more. This one's from Jonas Larson Olanders via email. If you had to set up a rival newspaper in Ankh-Morpork, what would you call it and what would your niche be? Ooh, that's a good question. I remember when I, you know, I said uh, when I was in school, I had to write newspaper stuff. When I was in primary school, one of the projects I did was create my own newspaper and it was a very dumb satirical newspaper with really dumb jokes in it and it was called The Daily Weekender. Uh, and I, I feel like that's a kind of title that would go without comment in Ankh-Morpork. I, I can see Dibbler kind of going, people like the Sunday paper because it's got more fun stuff in it. What if we do a paper that's the Sunday paper every day? <laughs> and so I feel like that would be the equivalent. What they what Ankh-Morpork doesn't have at the moment is their version of the Australian. So... <laughs> So this is what you would set up. No, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> like non-Australian listeners. An enterprising you... person who wanted to really find the niche. I mean, not that the Australian makes any money, but like what you would do is you would set up the paper that was essentially the mouthpiece of power. Mm. And you would be doing it as an entirely kind of uh, power-broking project. And it would be to crush all your rivals and be the dominant voice and talk to the Mr. Windlers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because, is, is yeah. that his name? Okay. No, yeah, that's his name, Mr. Windler. And you Mr. would talk, yeah, you would talk to the Mr. Windlings of the world, and you would be shaping their opinions for the worse. In my opinion, I, this is why I will so never true. get a job at the Australian. Who, that's all right. You don't want to work there. Who who would uh, who would they be sucking up to? Because Veterinari would not be into it. I'd be, be like, like the unelect people. Like that would be the it would be the de- the, the Lord de words of the world. Oh, and some of the guild leaders and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's who you're talking to. Yeah. Okay. Yep. We're not talking mm. to, sorry, that's not who, that's who you're talking for. You're yes. reflecting their opinions with an authority that suggests that the, the rest of the public ought to be listening to them because they're the ones who know what's right. Mm. And publishing racist cartoons about dwarfs and trolls. Yeah. You know Et is like smaller version of something? Oh, yeah. Like, What's the opposite of that? Like, so you have a gazette. Like, what's a really big one? <laughs> no. A gazjumbo? Okay. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm starting from there, and then my, my idea is a lot less serious and would not survive at all. Because um, all, I, all I could come up with that whole time was, who will watch The Watch? And I'm like, who will read this, this who will watch The Watch newspaper? Like, not The Watch. And no one else, but it would have a hell of a title for the one issue it was out. But yeah. I think the other problem I have with this is that I would just want to work at the Times. Mm. So I don't. <laughs> I, I the respectable legacy paper. paper, yes. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I could see like a niche paper, you know, I, I can see like maybe Red Shoe starting like the equivalent of the Green Left Weekly, you know. Yes, I was going to say, it would be like the earnest sort of socialist kind yeah. of form, form I, a student thing. And you know what he'd call it? He'd call it the Grey Left Weekend. <laughs> and it would be predominantly about and for zombies. Yeah. They'd have some go. pretty good um, feature interviews in that. <laughs> they would. They would. <laughs> uh, well, look, I think... Uh, 
Those those are some amazing questions, and thank you to everyone who sent some in, uh, even the ones we didn't get to answer. Like we just we just can't fit them all in sometimes, but they were all good. Every question was good. Uh, we might even maybe we'll try and stick a few in in a new club episode um, mm. for people who are subscribers. But uh, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me again. It's been a real pleasure. If people want to find out more about your work, first of all, can, tell us about your book. Because it's on my to-read list and I have not yet read it. And I, I'm i ashamed of this. I bought a digital copy of it. I just haven't read it yet. You bought it. That's that's half the I did. Half the battle. Yeah, I bought it. <laughs> and, and I'm really looking forward to it. But you, in your own words, how would you describe it to our listeners? Um, it's definitely not as funny as a Terry Pratchett novel, that's for sure. No, it's a piece of investigative journalism around the death of a boxer after a title fight in 2015 in Sydney in Australia. And it was quite a complex case um, and quite telling around things like duty of care in sport, head injury, masculinity, the history of a very violent sport and Australian culture. It's called After the Count, The Death of Davy Brown, and it's out through Penguin. Yeah, and long list- which award was it longlisted for? Uh, it was the- longlisted for the Walkley Book of the Year Award. It was also highly commended in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and it was shortlisted for the Nib Prize. I This is why I've got to read it. I mean, also, it sounds fascinating and every time I read a review or any comments about it, they're all talking about how deep it goes on, you know, not just the specific topic of boxing and the dangers of boxing, but, yeah, the whole culture of sport and the history of boxing as an art and everything. And it sounds it sounds fascinating. I'm really keen to read it. So thank you. And if people want to find out more about the book or about you, where can they go online to do that? Well, you can find um, a lot of my work at The Guardian or I am on Twitter and my handle is Ginger and Honey. Or, and I'm also on Instagram. You can just search my name and it's there. Excellent. Well, please do, listeners. It's well worth your time. I often see your name on an article and I'm like, well, I've got to read that one now. Uh, I get my cup of tea. And uh, now I'm looking forward to reading the book. So thank you very much once again. Listeners, we had a couple of quick questions for you that I'm going to um, squeeze in. And also just a quick announcement. The Australian Discord Convention, who are friends of the podcast, have asked us just to remind people that while they have had to delay this year's convention until next year, they now have new dates. So the next Nullus Anxietis Australian Discord Convention will be from the 8th to the 10th of April 2022. So if you're listening to this in early 2022, you don't have much time left. Um, if you're listening to it when we release it, you've got about a year, so don't panic. But also, they are doing an online celebration this year on the date that they would have held the convention. So the Lost Con, as in the short for the Lost Continent, took me a while to get that, but when I did, I was so pleased. It's very clever. The Lost Con will be on the 3rd of July this year, 2021. Um, so watch out for that. We're hoping to get involved. Um, we haven't concretely figured that out yet, but we are hoping to be there and do something live. So watch out for news of that in the near future. We also just wanted to ask you, would you like us to do an episode talking about The Watch? We want to hear from you. Um, it's out now. I've seen it. Uh, Liz hasn't had a chance to watch it yet. But if you would like us to talk about it, let us know and we will do it. Um, who will call I, it Who Will Watch The Watch? Ask. No. no we're not calling it. <laughs> there's, there's already a podcast about that. There's so many good Discworld podcasts. I mean, there's Who Watches The Watch, which is The Watch one, obviously. Also, we didn't mention the masthead for the Angmore Pork Times, which is variously The Truth Shall Make You Free, The Truth Shall Make You Fear, The Truth Shall Make Frere. You Fred. But the best one is clearly The Truth Shall Make You Fret, uh, which is another Discworld podcast. It's well worth your time to listen to. 
they're up to, I forget what book they're up to, but anyway, they're out there. So anyway, let us know if you want us to talk about The Watch. Let us know if you want me to do a spin-off podcast about Douglas Adams, which would be in a similar style to this, but a bit different. I've got an idea about it. Look, I'll be honest with you, I want to do it. I definitely do not have the time to do it now, but if enough people want to do it and they indicate they'd be willing to chip in some cash, maybe I'll run a fundraiser or something. We'll make it happen. But also, if you are a subscriber, if you haven't heard our latest episode of the subscriber-only bonus podcast, The Oot Club, we need more questions. We've nearly run out of questions, so please send us some more questions. Listen to the latest episode. Send us in some questions. But next time, we'll be back, Liz, and we're going to be reading. Uh, we're skipping ahead a little bit. We're not just going to read the next Discworld book, but we are sticking with Discworld. Which book, Liz? Uh, we're going to be filling a hat filled with Sky. Yes. I was trying to say, we're, I was trying to make a comment about like putting Sky into a hat, but like, we're reading a hat full of Sky is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to say the thing. Don't you? <laughs> uh, yes, so we're skipping ahead to the second Tiffany Aching novel, A Hat Full of Sky. I've never read it before. I'm super pumped for it because after reading The We Free Men and realizing what I've been missing out on by not reading the Tiffany Aching books, I'm really keen to read them all. I know Steph, Steph's making a face at me, and that's How very reasonable. How could you not read Tiffany Aching, my God? I didn't know. Nobody told me how good they are. That is not was... true. How many people have told you how good they are? <laughs> well, they have now. They didn't at the time. Uh, but look, we're going to be joined uh, by a writer and friend of the podcast, Sally Evans. I'm really excited to have her on. She's a big Tiffany Aching fan, and she's going to have so many great things to say about it. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. So if you've got any questions about A Hat Full of Sky, please send them in. We'll be recording in late April. So get your questions in by then. You can use the hashtag PrattChat43 for that episode. And thank you all for listening. If you weren't listening, there'd be no point in us doing this. So thank you. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that with money. Or you can just do it by telling other people about it. If you know someone who likes Terry Pratchett and you think they'd like this podcast, let them know. You can also leave a review on your favourite podcast directory. If you're listening to this in the month it's released, that's April 2021, a great place to leave a review for us this month would be Podchaser at podchaser.com. It's kind of like the internet movie database for podcasts. And this month, April 2021, they are donating a small amount of money for every review that people post on the site to Meals for Wheels in the U.S., and they'll double that small donation instead of 25 cents, they'll give 50 cents if we respond. So this means if you write a review this month, we will be doubly sure to respond to your lovely thoughts uh, or indeed criticisms. Be honest. We, we want to know. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please stop sending us photos of your amusingly shaped vegetables. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Stephanie Convery. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat42. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.